by the end of that year, one of the boy's mothers told this teacher, you saved my boy's life. Because he really was going down the road where he was feeling so useless and bad about himself. I was really worried that he might harm himself. So he said, literally, you have saved, I think you've saved his life. Welcome to Rethinking Education. Education's critical friend. Hello, fellow subjects of late capitalism. I hope this finds you well. The last episode with Donald Clark went down well. On the Mighty Network, one listener wrote, What an utterly amazing podcast. Wow. When I asked what they enjoyed about the episode, they wrote, The middle way is the obvious one. I can also relate to Donald's personal motivations based on his background. I found the index on religion interesting given my educational background. Brilliant strand on the blackboard as a backward step in education. The information about Roger Shank. Reality tunnels, why manual workers matter. The oil and water graduate class. That Donald doesn't think he can change the system from within. That there are external causes required. Covid, for example. That courses are events and not a process and that's why they're ineffective. And uh, this person also enjoyed the comments on Utopia, Dystopia and Star Trek. Another listener wrote, Just when I thought these podcasts couldn't get any better, politics, education and philosophy, some of my favourite topics in one. I have to say, as someone who considers themselves from a working class background, didn't go to uni, brought up in a single parent family, etc., I agree with Donald's politics a lot and totally agree that at times I felt I can't say what I really feel when it comes to my political thoughts or beliefs because others opposing those views will get nasty, especially on social media, which I know from personal correspondence Donald has faced a lot of as well on social media. Uh, This person went on to say, I'm really tempted to listen again, as there was lots of really interesting stuff to take in. So that's nice. I certainly got a lot out of listening back to the episode with Donald. When you run a podcast, you get lots of people writing to you to ask if they can come on. Often this is done through booking agents, and for the most part, I ignore such requests. But a few months ago, I was contacted by today's guest, and I just couldn't say no. Geraldine Rowe is an educational psychologist and former teacher and a specialist in parent partnership and behaviour and attendance. She's worked as an AP for over 30 years. She's taught in middle schools and primary schools and has been a member of the leadership team of an alternative provision secondary school. Her career has taken her into over 100 schools and she is a really good example of someone who is outside the teaching profession for the most part, but who has immense experience and valuable insight to share. Geraldine recently published an absolutely fascinating book called It's Our School, It's Our Time, a companion guide to whole school collaborative decision making. The book is a highly readable account of Geraldine's doctoral study, which features three case studies of teachers in mainstream schools who make decisions with their pupils rather than for them. Geraldine's research is an extension of prior work in the tradition of radical student voice and her thinking has been strongly influenced by two brilliant people who used to work at the Institute of Education, sadly before I joined, Michael Fielding and Chris Watkins. Here's a review of the book that one reader wrote on Amazon, which I'll share because it provides a good overview of what the book and this podcast is about. This reviewer wrote... I really enjoyed this book by Geraldine Rowe and I recommend it to class teachers, senior leaders, teacher educators and policy makers. 
It fits beautifully into a series of recent works that challenge the high-pressure, anxiety-ridden, high-stakes, test-driven environments that we have allowed many of our schools to become. Her key concept is what she calls CDM, Collaborative Decision Making. Building on the experiences of three primary school teachers who were the case studies of her thesis, she develops a convincing theoretical framework which sets out why the practice of CDM works to the benefit of not just the students but also their teachers. It's interesting that none of the case study teachers had been long in the profession, none had received guidance in the practice of CDM in their training, and none had senior management support or encouragement for their participative, democratic, rights-respecting approach to young people. They did it because they felt <clears throat> they did it because they felt it was the right thing to do. Geraldine rightly claims that we know CDM works, presenting powerful evidence that students learn more effectively and with enhanced self-esteem and well-being when they're able to express their feelings and opinions and take individual and collective ownership of their studies and the general management of the class and the school. This book is both a practical what to do on Monday morning guide for teachers who want to dare to give it a try and also presents a powerful theoretical case for change. And a second reviewer writes, this book is an absolute must for forward-thinking professionals working in schools today. It is inspirational, innovative and well-written. I felt she was right there with me as I read it. I have raved about it so much to my senior team that they are now reading it too and looking to how we can implement some of the ideas in September. Thank you to Geraldine for giving this amazing book to the teaching world. Close quote. Having read the book, I can say with hand on heart that these are reviews that I would wholeheartedly endorse. The importance of choice and agency and autonomy in human development has come up again and again in this podcast, and it's often a key feature of teaching and learning in alternative schools and in international schools, I've noticed. But this is the first time that I've come across a book that looks at what collaborative decision-making and radical student voice can look like within mainstream settings, and there is no shortage of ways in which we can include children in the making of decisions that affect their daily lives. For me, this is a conversation that goes right to the heart of what I see as one of the major problems with the mainstream model of education. Coercion isn't good for kids, even if it gets results in the short term. And Geraldine offers lots of practical advice for teachers who want to move in a more collaborative, consent-based direction. Before we get to my conversation with Geraldine, a few quick bits of Rethinking Education news, if you will permit me. Firstly, the Rethinking Education Mighty Network just celebrated its first birthday. Yay! Happy birthday to us. When I recorded this conversation with Geraldine, there were 400 people in the community. As I mentioned later in this episode, we are now 450 strong and the numbers swell with every passing day. If you haven't yet joined, you can do so by visiting rethinking-education.mn.co or by downloading the Mighty Networks app on your phone and searching for Rethinking Education. There are links in the show notes, and it's free to join, by the way. There is no hidden agenda here. At the moment in the community, we're in the process of writing a kind of manifesto type thing to see whether we can arrive at consensus about the problems that we face and how we might address those problems. It's not at all obvious to me that we will be able to arrive at consensus. Lots of people often agree on the problems but have a hundred different ideas about the solutions to those problems. So it'll be an interesting exercise to see if we can arrive at something that we can all agree on. If you would like to contribute to the writing of this document, I would love to hear your thoughts once it's ready, assuming that we're able to arrive at consensus, but the early signs are pretty positive, we'll publish it more widely. 
The second piece of Rethinking Education news is that tickets are now on sale for the inaugural Rethinking Education conference, which will be on Saturday, the 17th of September 2022. It will be at the beautiful Addy and Stanhope School in New Cross in London, 10 minutes from London Bridge. We're hoping for around 500 people and we'd like there to be roughly equal numbers of people from five categories, mainstream educators, alternative educators, parents and carers, young people, and then there's a miscellaneous fifth category for psychologists, researchers, consultants, journalists, whoever, policymakers, union types, and so on. Uh, so the idea is partly that we want to bring together people from all walks of life and not just have teachers talking to other teachers, because as this episode shows, there are people who are outside the teaching profession who have lots of valuable things to say, especially young people. Early bird tickets are now available and there is a further 20% discount for friends of the podcast. You just need to enter the promo code REPOD20, that's R-E-P-O-D 20, all lowercase. This promotion is open for a limited time only, so get in there quick. There's a link in the show notes. Speaker applications are also now open. If you want to present or to run a workshop, there's a link in the show notes. And if you aren't in this part of the world, I'm afraid you don't get off the hook that easily because there will also be an online element to the conference. So you can submit a video presentation should you feel so moved. As you might imagine, making this podcast and organizing conferences and whatnot takes rather a lot of time and resource. If you would like to support the Rethinking Education project, you can now become a patron, should you feel so inclined. There are various benefits associated with doing so, including a searchable written and audio transcript of every episode to date, a copy of Fear is the Mind Killer, the book about learning to learn I co-authored with Kate McAllister, and at the highest tier, you can access a series of four 90-minute recorded workshops on metacognition, self-regulation, oracy, and self-regulated learning, which you can enjoy in the privacy of your own home or share with colleagues as a stimulus for professional development. To do this, please visit patreon.com forward slash repod. That's R-E-P-O-D again. Alternatively, if you'd like to buy me a pint or a coffee or perhaps even a pint of coffee, which some people seem to prefer to doing Patreon for I don't know why, you can do so by visiting buymeacoffee.com forward slash repod. Again, there are links in the show notes. Okay, that is quite enough of that. I will now hand over to my recent fascinating conversation with Geraldine Rowe. I hope you enjoy the show. Geraldine Rowe, welcome to the Rethinking Education podcast. You're welcome, it's a pleasure. So we're here, at least partly, to talk about your really remarkable book, It's Our School, It's Our Time, and I've really enjoyed, I've listened to it, I think I mentioned this to you the other day, I listened to it as a PDF on my phone and it sort of, it has like this quite a robotic, it's slightly <laughs> like, until, until the AI gets better at, at uh, intonating, so it's quite an interesting experience, but I've been really enjoying it and often I've been pausing it and dictating into my phone and I've made tons of notes on this and it's essentially about collaborative decision making isn't it, it is. um cdm as it's abbreviated and um this is an idea that you have have come up with 
um, to describe a, a certain sort of set of practices that you have seen in some schools, but that you would like to to boost the signal of and to see more widely. Um, so just to start, can I just ask you to sort of maybe not pitch the book because it's not really a sales pitch, but just to sort of like briefly summarize the book and what it's about for listeners. Well, I'll say a little bit about how the book came about, that I had done a doctorate uh, in education at the Institute of Education. And that was um, that involved uh, in-depth interviews with three practicing teachers who were sometimes using this approach, which is sharing decision-making in the classroom with their pupils. And those decisions could be about the curriculum, about pedagogy, about how they organize things in the classroom. And this book isn't a book of the thesis. This book is the book that my research concluded needed to be written because these teachers uh, really communicated that they would have been greatly helped to have examples of other people teaching this way and to have some kind of framework to explain why it worked and what to do when it wasn't working and how to explain it to their fellow teachers. So after doing my doctorate, I, I started working with some schools and realized there wasn't a resource like this around with stories of how other teachers had given this a go. So this book is full of stories about what teachers have done in the classroom to uh, collaborate with their pupils in deciding what they do and how. And these were uh, all the examples, bar a couple really, are in state schools. And my participants were all in state primary and middle schools. Yes. The examples in the book cover from early years through to uh, kind of sixth form and um, also some examples from special education as well. Yes, yes, thank you. And and I appreciate you sort of giving a little bit of background there as to how you how you sort of arrived at this idea. So, so there's, there's two sort of like directions that we could go in. Like, like often, often in this, in this podcast, I tend to start by talking about if the person's written a book or the main, the main idea that, that they're associated with, we sort of talk about that. And then we go into the, the person's background story and so on, or we could do it the other way around. So in the spirit of collaborative decision-making, I wonder, I wonder whether you have a preference as to whether we talk about your own education, your own journey, and how you arrived at this 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 work that you're doing now, or whether you would rather do talk about the book first and then we'll do the the you bit afterwards. Which would you prefer? I think it's interesting um, when you read a thesis um, or read someone's research. It's always useful to know um, where, what their ontology is, where they come from and their epistemology, where they get their information from, and their knowledge from, so that you're reading it, um, understanding that it is biased towards the person who's done the research. So I had to do, as part of the doctorate, um, some kind of self-analysis as to why does sharing decision-making with children appeal to me so much? And I, I think it's pretty clear to me. I have a high need for freedom, not to be told what to do all the time. And I also have quite a high need for what I call um, power and self-worth, which is to be able to influence um, my own life and, and other people's lives. I think I was brought up um, in a, a fairly, what I call, a, a liberal 
Catholic family um, with a high um, kind of social conscience that um, sometimes we would go on walks with my parents to protest against poverty. So there was a sense that you had an obligation to, to stand up for other people and to step out of line when you saw something being done that you thought was wrong. So I think I was encouraged to be a sort of fairly free thinker um, whilst uh, doing as I was told as well um, as, as a child. But I think I, I had a, a kind of slightly contrary gene anyway, that uh, I liked to do things slightly differently. And I also enjoyed the sort of things we did as a family, um, painting, listening to music, learning musical instruments, being out in the garden and the countryside. So I think there is a there is quite a lot of me in this research that the kind of school I'm um, describing is probably the kind of school I'd like. And I don't think that's uh, unusual for promoting uh, a kind of more progressive approach. Um, I had a, a, a very pleasant schooling. I went to um, Catholic primary school and, and grammar school. Nothing um, greatly different from most other people's schooling, I, I don't think. But it was only when I got to university I realised how much fun learning could be. And right from the first weeks of university, I couldn't believe how wonderful it was to be encouraged to question research, to, to ask questions about what we were being told and to pull apart stuff that we were reading and, and being lectured on. Um, so quite was, a big, uh, lot of philosophy in there. Right. So what was, what was your degree in? I, I didn't get into any university that I applied for, and I was very fortunate not to, because the one I ended up with, which was uh, Uni University of Wales Institute of Science and Technology, UIST in Cardiff, uh, I, I got a place in clearing on the applied psychology degree. And on first sight, this didn't look like the greatest place. It was basically two porta, porta cabins on top of each other um, <laughs> in a muddy field above a motorway by a hall of residence. But it was the most amazing department. And in the time I was there, they actually did build a proper library for the department, but um, because the books were making the porter cabins um, unsafe. Um, but it was the most amazing place to, to go. And I still think that the, uh, the teaching we got there and, and the seminars we had um, did shape a lot of my thinking as well. Right. And, and so you identified, did you identify quite early on that you wanted to, to go into educational psychology? Um, I, I think I, I learned a little bit about it when I was in the sixth form. And I'd never even really heard that you could do psychology at university. Like uh, many secondary schools at the time, particularly, um, I think, particularly girls' schools. Mine was a girls' grammar school. Um, we had really zero careers advice. So um, my parents uh, got me an appointment with, with the careers advisor at the boys' school, and, um, and she chatted to me and said, I think um, 
you might be interested in psychology. And I said, what's that? And she told me about it. And I said, oh, can you study that at university then? She said, oh, certainly. And I couldn't believe that you could study something so interesting. Um, so that did put me in line with, with psychology. Um, and when I was doing the degree, we, it was a sandwich course. So we went for a, I worked as an occupational assistant occupational psychologist for a year doing lots of psychometric tests and decided I didn't want a job with lots of psychometric testing because I just felt it was quite limiting and not really what I wanted to do. But we met through the course, we met some educational psychologists who came in to talk to us about their work, along with lots of other psychologists in, in uh, applied psychology. And I just felt that the educational and clinical psychologists had the kinds of jobs I'd be interested in doing. Right. And and going looking back over your own education, you said that you had a pleasant time of it. Would you say that there was much collaborative decision making taking place in the schools or like thinking all the way through to university? Or do you feel like it was very much something that was sort of done to you? The only the only real um, example of collaborative decision making I can think of in my secondary education was um, that in my A-level biology, we were one of the first groups to do the Nuffield um, syllabus where you could choose uh, your own social insect to study. That, that's, I think, the only example I can remember. And I studied the honeybee because we kept bees. Right. Okay. So it was <laughs> it's quite a narrow, quite a narrow window of, of, of autonomy there. You like you've got to choose a social insect, and we, <laughs> but you can choose which social insects to choose. Yes. Okay. So it's yeah. All right. So so not very much, in other words. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um. And and so you taught for a while, didn't you? Like, is it, it was the case that you you had to teach at the time in order to become an educational psychologist? I had I had a wonderful two years in a, a small primary school just outside Winchester. Um, this was pre-national curriculum. So actually we had a lot of uh, scope for involving the children in, in what we taught and how. And um, we were just on the edge of the South Downs. So I had a mixed year one and two class. And they would sometimes say to me, Miss um, Walbrick, can we go? Can we go for a walk this morning? And I go, well, we've got to we've got to finish the maths. Um, how long do you think you've got that you need to finish the maths that we started? And they'd say, well, maybe if we don't have break time, we could go for the walk at the beginning of break time. So we'd have a little chat about it and they go, yes, we don't mind missing break. We'd rather go for a walk. So we were able to do that sort of thing because times were different. I really enjoyed it, but I, I knew my vocation wasn't to be a, a teacher. I was doing it because I, I loved it, but I was doing it because I had to to apply for the educational psychology training. Okay, so what was it that that, that drew you so strongly towards educational psychology? I think that probably the the, the people who visited us at university and talked about their work. So um, Dennis Lawrence was one I remember, and he had done research into um, self-esteem and reading. And he was looking at um, 
how by building children's self-esteem, you could actually improve their, their reading scores. And um, I just found the whole thing fascinating of, of how you had to look at the whole person, not just at little skills and skill building. And um, I also liked the idea of having a job, this is the freedom bit again, where you weren't stuck in one office, but you were going round lots of different schools. Yes, so it's varied. Very varied. And you also have a lot of autonomy in how you do your work. So you have to do um, X number of hours in each school that, uh, that it's been agreed. Um, but the way you do that and, and how you do it is negotiated with the schools. So you can work quite differently in one school to, to the next, I depending on, on what they want and what you're able to offer. Right. Yeah, I can see why that would be appealing. And so just in case anybody's not really particularly familiar with the role of an educational psychologist, and I include, yes. I include myself in that category, <laughs> by the way, I, in, in sort of 12 years of teaching, I never came into contact with an educational psychologist. Um, I know some people who are EPs, but I've never really spoken to them that much about their work. So for my benefit, as much as for anybody else's, could you just sort of paint a picture as to what sorts of things an EP gets up to? So uh, just as an example, I'll give you, a, a, at the beginning of each term, um, we would sit down with uh, the, the contact member of school staff, who might be the special needs coordinator or a deputy head or a head of house or year, whoever's been allocated to be our contact. And we'd say, well, what are the issues that, are, um, that you want our help with? So they might say, well, there are, there are four youngsters we want to talk about. And they could be either um, children or young people who are finding it difficult, they're finding it difficult to, to teach or who seem to be stuck in their learning, who maybe are, um, whose behavior is causing concern, who maybe are isolated. So it can be learning, behavior, social sides, um, or their mental health. It could be children who stop coming to school. So there may be some individuals, and they may also say, um, we'd also like you to have some input to staff on something we're looking into. So it might be, they might be uh, looking into um, improving playground behavior, for example, I'll just give you a, a simple one, or preparation for exams. Um, a school might even ask about staff well-being, um, if we can help with that. But I'd say the majority of the work is around individual students or, or pupils. And so um, we'll talk about, about those with the Senko, but not using the names, because we haven't got anyone's consent at this stage. They'll just say, it's a boy in year two or a girl in year 10. And at that point, we might actually be able to give some um, advice or, or to put our heads together and come up with something to try already without even having to see the young person. Um, so it might be saying, well, this is something you might want to try and then come back again when you've tried this. Um, and if we need to find more out about what the, so assess the needs um, more thoroughly, we can do that. Um, 
some schools you go into and they've got a, a list that will take you 10 years to get through. So you've got to help them find priorities because I can't choose the priorities for them. They have to choose it. But after you've been working with someone for, you know, for a Senko or a deputy or a head teacher for um, a few months, you you really can can talk quite freely about the issues and what's going on in the school, and they might even be ringing you between visits. Um, and once once the, we sorted out the list, then we'll just put a timetable together. And say, okay, so next week that we come in, um, I think it would sound good if we meet the head of year 10 because there are four or five students in that year um, and maybe we can also see this youngster and their parents so get started with that one so when we see the the young person and their parents and the teachers concerned um, we just get some background look at um, how people would judge success so, say to young people, what if I was to visit you in two terms' time? How would I know things getting better? And um, and really come up with some approaches um, that they can try, and then plan do review approach, try things, review them, make a new plan. So it's not a they're not one off assessments. It tends to be an ongoing process, and you might actually be involved with some pupils for you know even a couple of years on and off right yes okay so so the, it does sound very varied and that you have lots of you know really quite in-depth and what sounds like quite meaningful interactions with young people over prolonged periods of time we do and uh, i think it's there are some aspects of the of the job which i think could could really be improved <laughs> Um, I think the the training, particularly that the educational psychologists get through their doctorate now, arm them with many, many skills that they don't really get the opportunity to use in the job. So, for example, um, there's a lot of work on, on systems, a lot of work on really high quality doctoral research. And once they start their work as, as educational psychologists, in many local authorities, they don't really get the opportunity to do research, although they are expert researchers. Um, I would like to see the profession play a much more active role in the design of schools and learning, because it is about applying educational psychology. And I think EPs are, are in a very good place to be um, to be the interface between academia and practice. And quite often in our discussions with teachers and parents and students, we are um, thinking research. We're thinking, what does the research say about this? What do we know about the psychological theory of this? But we won't be talking theory and evidence, but we will be um, using that and bringing some of the ideas into the discussions. So I think I would like to see not us picking up the pieces, as it were, but having more of a say in the design of schools and, um, and education. 
Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that that's a really good idea. I think that the, there's a sort of there's a bit of a closed shop sense sometimes that that um, I mean, even even with even within, like the, for example, the designs of school buildings, teachers often aren't consulted in that. That's just sort of down <laughs> to architects and they they talk to teachers, but then they crack on with whatever plans they already had up their sleeve. Um, and so I, I think it's a great idea to consult more widely and to bring in expertise um, where people have got value, valuable um, insights to share. So, so it sounds like the, like collaborative decision making. You, you, you discussed the, the example with, you know, letting the kids decide to go for a walk instead of having their normal break time. And it sounds like there's also elements of collaborative decision making with the child. You were saying that, you know, you can't make the decision for them, that they, you need to sort of to work with the young person to help them to figure out a way forward. But it sounds yeah. like CDM sort of is woven a little bit through your career. But so, so I'd be interested to hear about how it came to take such a prominent role in your thinking. To what extent, like, so that just about the genesis of this idea and, and where did, like, to what extent was it informed by your work as an EP and to what extent was it something that you sort of that you retrofitted if you like where you were looking back over your career and you were like oh, okay I can see that there's a sort of a group of practices here that we could maybe look at in more detail and then it sort of started to grow legs in that way. I think going going back to my my childhood my my um my mother and grandmother were teachers and both of them are delighted in um, working with the least attractive children. So my grandmother, who taught in a, a school in Bootle in Liverpool, very deprived area, she used to say to the head teacher, give me your worst year six boys. Because she, she felt she had a skill there. And my mother, um, when, we, when we started school, she changed from being in mainstream teaching, which she'd done before she was married, to being in a special they called an ESN school, Education Subnormal yeah. School, wonderful title. And um, because at that time, inclusion or what they called normalization, children being um, uh, in mainstream school was already starting. The ones that they got were the ones that had behavior difficulties. Um, so she had a, an approach which was really to see the best in every child. So I've learned from her stories coming home from school about how she had explored the um, the gifts of each child and really believed that if you dug down deep enough, there was something really special about every child. So I, I was brought up with that aspect as well. And having seen uh, my mother take and, and father joining in, he didn't wasn't a teacher, but um, letting children camp in the woods near our house and them making puppets and puppet theatres and um, uh, my father sometimes employing some of her ex-pupils. And um, so I've always believed that if you if you give them the time, you will find some extraordinary things about every child. And of course, it's a it's um, it's a great um, privilege to have the time with an individual child that teachers don't have to sit and listen to them talk about their lives and their impressions of school. And because I didn't want to always be reporting this secondhand, uh, I used to sometimes invite teachers if they were able to be freed up or teaching assistants if the teachers weren't able to be freed up to come and eavesdrop with the child's permission 
on our conversation because I wanted someone to, who worked with the child to hear what came out of their mouths. And I know there are some schools now giving teachers um, more of an opportunity to to work individually with their pupils from their own classes or their own subjects, but it's still very rare. But to be able to sit down and hear someone say what they say to me and then, then teach them in the classroom, you can't teach them in the same way once you've heard what they say sometimes. I remember one um, uh, one discussion. It was I was doing some students as researchers um, work in a school in uh, Harrow I was working in. This involves students being trained up in some research schools and um, designing some of their own research, which I just helped to supervise. And at the end of the research, there was a great um, discussion with some, I think it was four or five of the student researchers. And these were all, um, they were called young leaders, which was a euphemism for boys on the edge of exclusion. Um, and most of these boys hadn't been taught in main classrooms in the secondary school for quite a while because they were too much of a handful. They were getting taught in a kind of unit um, unit classroom with a, um, a mentor. And these boys were talking about their observations in classrooms and how they had started to see other people misbehaving in the classrooms as a real problem and and to recognize that some of their own behaviors was um, stopping other people learning and a problem to the teacher. This is, this is not what this research set out to do. The research set out for them to see how pupils can help each other to enjoy and learn in lessons and they're observing for that. But the thing that really struck me was one boy said, we've been here for so long, we've forgotten why we're here. We've been in school. Now, then they were by that time about 14 and they've been in school since they were five. So they've been in school nine years and they've forgotten why we're here. And I just thought that was great because they then started to talk about why they were here. And I just had to sit and listen to them. And they were talking about what would make school interesting to learn. It's just I just let the conversation go on and on. And and how they couldn't actually behave every single day. And they would like to be able to behave well for one day and not be expected to carry it on forever and ever. And to maybe make a uh, a promise to work hard for a week, but they couldn't promised to work hard for 52 weeks mm. and they were so articulate these boys and they were the ones that were really the rejects of our system and I just it's, it's experiences like that and hearing I remember hearing a, a traveler boy who was very troublesome in class talk to me and I think he must have been about eight seven or eight he could drive. He could drive a dumper truck. He could work power tools. He knew how to dig in different kinds of earth. He knew how to look after animals. Um, he knew quite a lot about money and the cost of things, but he couldn't do maths and English in schools. 
and school had what was going on in the classroom had very little relevance for him because he had to leave his life at the door and he was looked down on actually by some of the staff because there were teachers in that school who had signed a petition to get rid of the traffic site locally. So it's it seemed kind of the waste that the system has in it that really quite I kind of gave me energy really to look much more at pupil voice mm. and um, and being honest with pupils. So when if I saw parents and a teacher before I saw a young person, I would I would tell them I was going to do this. I would first of all say, I, I met your parents and, and your teachers earlier this morning. Did you know that? And usually they did. I said, can I tell you what I think I know about you from that conversation? Can you tell me whether you think you agree with that? So we would go through and I'd say, because so I'm getting the impression that you like riding bicycles, that you, and they, they'd nod or disagree. And I'd say, at the end of this conversation, I'm going to have to come up with some recommendations um, at the moment this is what I'm thinking recommending but we'll talk about this and I will tell you what I'm going to write in my notes and you can tell me if you don't want me to write it or not and as long as it's something that not something that will harm you or others um, I can agree to it and I also used to say to the pupils you can leave at any time you're not a prisoner here at any time, if, if you want to leave this, this room, you just either say, I've had enough, can I go? Or just go. And and that's fine. And I really liked it when a young person would say, can I leave now? Because it showed they felt they could. But for the most part, I'd say, are you okay to, to stay on? And they'd say yes, because they knew they had the choice. So I had some conversations with some children who had been described as difficult to engage but it was really because they didn't feel that people wanted to hear what they had to say yeah yeah and were these the, were these um boys that you were working with were these the ones that you mentioned in the book that that they often were absent from school but on the days when they knew that their opinions were going to be listened to they all turned up that was that was actually from someone else's research <laughs> that um someone who was doing a, the doctorate in um, educational psychology. And that has been told to me by other people doing pupil voice research. And another, another thing that uh, very early on in my training as an EP, I, I did my own little bit of research, which was, um, do you know how pupils get put on, on report yeah. in secondary school? And they have to take a, um, a form around the teachers who ticket or um, write how good or bad they were mm -hmm. in class. Um, so in the, I suppose it was probably 1980, 1981, when I was um, a trainee, educational psychologist, I did this little piece of research um, based on a paper by O'Leary and O'Leary, which I have not found since, because I didn't have computers then to um, put our big bibliographic databases on. But um, they said, if you get the young people to record their own reports, then um, you get more um, maintenance of change 
because most students, they're on report, they behave. As soon as they come off report, they go back to baseline. Yeah. And what this report said, they go, they they regress, but they don't go back to the baseline. They go back to a new behavior because they have done self-evaluation. And I got some of the students to design their own reports and to get to take place and to take part in them. And the teachers could only either tick the um, tick the box to show that they um, agreed with the pupil's self-valuation or or put a cross and and sign their name right. on this. And for the most part, in fact, not for the most part, um, either the teachers agreed with the pupils or the teachers said the pupils were too harsh on themselves. And the conversations that we had with the teachers and the pupils in that piece of research also uh, set the scene for my future way of working, which was we've got to get students evaluating themselves because it's much more accurate in many ways and it has that added psychological component of changing their perceptions of themselves. Yeah, yeah, I've I've remember reading that in the book, and I also have seen that in not with regard to self reports, but just regard to self evaluation of a piece of work, that young people are often very very critical of themselves, and and the teachers often have to sort of boost them up and say, actually, I think that that's a little bit overly critical, but it's it's an interesting phenomenon that um, that you know we talk about teachers inflating grades and so on. If when when we do that, when we do it in a collaborative way with young people, you end up at something that's much more sort of in the middle ground that's negotiated. Uh, maybe because the young people have got more of a clear sense of what they are capable of on a really good day, and that they know that they're not hitting that level, and so they sort of say, you know, this is not my best work, sort of thing. Whereas the teacher might be quite happy with it. Um, and so so let's get let's get into the into the um into the sort of the, the meat of the of this work if you like so you signed up to do a phd i'd, I'd be interested to hear with, with the conversation that we had the other day about how this concept of cdm sort of came to you and it's not often by the way that that people come up with new concepts <laughs> in education like it's, it's, it's not it's not necessarily new in the sense that you know student voice and people voice has existed for a long time um, but it's new in the sense that it's been named in this way, and I found it fascinating that it's named in this in this that, it, that you're looking at it through this lens of collaboration. Because often we hear that we we hear people saying things like students need more autonomy, they need more agency, more choice, more say over what they learn and how, and so on, as though it's a sort of a free for all. And understandably, teachers are quite resistant to to giving children too much autonomy and agency because they think they're just going to run amok with it and that they're going to go in a thousand different directions and it'll be really unmanageable and so on. But but by framing it as, as a collaboration, as a collaborative endeavour between the teachers and the pupils, it is essentially about giving the students more autonomy in the sense that they've gone from having no say to having some say, but it's not saying that they've got a carte blanche. They've, they're they're, they're in the, engaged in this in this process of you know of negotiation yeah. and sharing ideas and and conceding certain ground at certain times and you know trying things out risk taking and being allowed to make mistakes and so on 
Um, but I really like the idea that that it's that it's sort of that you're framing it in this in this way through through this language of collaborative decision making. So congratulations, first of all, on, on having an original idea <laughs> or that, that you know that hasn't existed before. And I really think that it's got legs. Um, but so, so let's talk first of all about how you sort of how you came up with this with this way of of seeing things and with this phrase CDM. Well, first of all, I'd just like to say I didn't do a PhD. I did an EdD. Yes, sorry. And that's important because um, the the professional doctorate, the EdD, uh, which I'd like to, like to publicise, is very good, um, means that not only do you have the um, uh, requirements of the PhD, but it also has to be professionally relevant. You have to show professional relevance to your um, to education. So it has that additional um, need. So it also means that you are working with a group of other people doing their own research um, from other areas of education uh, rather than just doing it, being a sort of lone figure. So, again, more collaboration I think, with, with other researchers. Um, so I applied to do the EdD at the Institute of Education because uh, there were many researchers and um, people I'd read uh, who I found interesting, such as um, Michael Fielding and Chris Watkins, yeah. uh, Frank Caulfield, um, and people who visited uh, the Institute of Education, like Paola Freira, um, and uh, just had a, a link with a lot of people involved in progressive education. And I liked the... Um, I like the idea of being part of the institution that these people belong to. Um, I wanted to kind of stand on their shoulders. Yeah. And um, when I, uh, when you apply for an EDD, you have to write a proposal for some research. Of course, you don't know what you're going to do at that point. So you write um, something that you might be interested in, knowing you're going to change it. And I actually wrote something about the role of outside professionals in schools' behaviour processes because um, I used to manage behavioural attendance in one of my, my previous roles. Um, I didn't end up doing that um, as, as a piece of research, of course, because I did share decision-making. But my um, proposal was picked up by Professor Andy Tolmy, who is the dean of the doctoral school, um, an eminent cognitive psychologist. And um, I asked him later why he picked it up, and he said because I was a psychologist and there were very few psychologists um, applying for the for the doctorates, um, Eddie doctorates. Um, and what was really good, he's and he is a fantastic researcher, but he knew very little about the research and background in what I was calling then pupil voice and participation. And being a very rigorous researcher, he really kept pinning me down to well, what do you mean by this? What do you mean by democratic education? How do we know it if we saw it? What is progressive? Um, and he forced me to really operationalize the concept. How do you know when you see it? What are people doing? What's it look like? How would you measure it? You know, how would you uh, know it if, if it's absence? Um, so it took a long time because most of the stuff I was reading talked very happily about pupil voice and participation and democratic teachers and democracy in the classroom. But I had to really pin down what activity is it in all those places that I think makes the difference. 
and I've got to treat it. I'm not a sociologist. I'm not a, into education philosophy as a, as a subject, and I'm interested in these things. I'm not a politician. I'm a psychologist. So I'm interested in how people learn, how people feel good about themselves, how people get along together, and what is it that's going on in the classroom that's going to help those things. So I pinned it down to it's actually teachers sharing decision-making with pupils. And once I got that concept in mind and was rereading papers I'd come across, I, I was happy with that concept. So I wanted to um, do something around that as my, as my final thesis. Um, and what I was finding is there's many, many books and papers uh, written by people saying what a great thing it is to share decision-making with pupils or to, to involve them in, in decisions in, in the school and um, in running things in the school and why more schools should be doing it and how awful it is that nobody's doing it. But very few books and papers describing people doing it. And I think, I hope I, I did quite a, a good systematic um, search on these over, over the years and um, found as many examples as I could of people actually describing what it looks like in the classroom. But at first I was thinking, well, why isn't it happening? It just makes so much sense. Um, in fact, my um, sister-in-law, when I was describing um, what my book was about, she said, I don't want to appear rude, Geraldine, but it's not exactly rocket science. Why isn't everybody doing this? And that's what I used to feel before I did my research. I used to think, well, it's pretty straightforward, this. Why isn't everybody doing it if it's so good? But rather than look at why people weren't doing it, I decided, because I was very interested for a long time in something called appreciative inquiry, which I might talk about a bit more later, um, and that is when you have something happening that you think is good but is quite rare, like when all nurses are leaving nursing, you don't interview all the ones leaving, you interview the ones staying and say, what is it about nursing that's keeping you here or about this experience? So I wanted to look at, at go on a treasure hunt for teachers who are using this approach and really ask them, why are you doing it? What does it mean to teach in this way? Um, what's your lived experience of sharing decisions with pupils? What's the, what are the ups and downs for you? and your perceptions about pupils. Um, and I knew they were rare, but I hadn't quite reckoned on, on how difficult it was going to be to find these people. Um, I work in a, worked in the, a department where there were lots of people going to schools every day. There was a, a, every educational psychologist going to schools every day, education welfare officers, advisory teachers. I had everybody on the, the case trying to find these teachers. I set up a group to support teachers in what I call pupil voice. Had a lot of interest, but when they came to the groups, none of them were doing it. They just said, we'd like to know more about it, but we're not doing it yet. Um, and it was through my work as a, an educational psychologist that I just came across my participants. Um, I think I described in the book, the first one, who I call Carl, 
I was doing my normal EP job, which is I was talking to the, um, the, the teacher. I hadn't actually met the young person because I didn't, I didn't need to at this stage. I talked to the teacher about a boy in his class who was um, really getting up to a lot of hijinks in the classroom. Um, we'd identified he wasn't popular at all, mainly because of his, his behaviour, but we, we don't know what comes first. And he wasn't um, writing and reading and lots of things going on. And um, I discussed some approaches with the teacher. One of them was Circle of Friends. And I said, look, I'll send you some stuff on, on this. And, and when I come back in, um, we'll talk about it. So I came back in about three weeks later and I said, um, what did you, well, how, how are things going? And he says, well, not much better. I said, well, did you, what did you think of um, the Circle of Friends approach? And he said, um, I discussed it with the class. And... They like it, but they'd like to do it differently. And my radar was going mad. This is one of those teachers. This is one of those teachers. <laughs> um, and I said, is this something you do, you do typically discuss with teach what you're going to do with the whole class? And he said, yes, always. And I said, look, we'll talk about this pupil, but um, can I have a book of time for another discussion with you about some research I'm doing? And um, so he was my first participant. And um, is this the teacher yes, described as Carl in the book? Yes. Right. Okay. And he had come to this approach, um, really just because it felt the right thing to do. But he he did know he was unusual. But he didn't know it was something that was recognised. And he kept asking me, "Why are you Why are you interested in me?" Why are you studying this? Um, but as the months went on, because it was about 15 months, over 15 months, I was having in-depth interviews with him and what's what we call um, go-alongs, which are kind of hanging out with him in the classroom, not to observe what was going on, but to get some shared experiences we could use in the discussion. And also for me to see the context in which his... Um, experience was was happening so by hanging around in the classroom for a bit i'd be able to just he'd be able to say things like do you know those that group of boys that always try and, and get first in the line um so he, i said yes and then he'd be able to talk about them so it was to get some shared experiences um for the for the in-depth interviews um so over that time because Obviously, I'm giving him the message that what he's doing is valuable. He is doing more of it. And he'll say things, and, and so the other two participants as well, they'd say things to me when we met, like, um, I had to make this decision the other day, and, and I thought of you, so I involved the pupils. Um, or we, we have Star of the Week assemblies, and I thought of our discussion, and so I asked the class, would they like to help me to choose Star of the Week? Um, so they they felt backed up by our conversations. And they also said that it was very rewarding having these interviews and discussions because they never got to talk about their teaching. Nobody ever asked us to talk at length about what we do. 
when people want to ask about her teaching, it's more about um, administrative things like um, are you running out of art paper or um, can you get your children to behave better at lunchtime? But not about pedagogy and curriculum and your beliefs about teaching. So I didn't have any trouble in, in persuading them to have more and more conversations with me. Yeah. And, and we'd roll on and we'd talk about things in more depth each time. Yes. Yeah. And so there were three main participants that you studied in depth, weren't there, yes. in total? Um, and so I wonder if, like, for listeners who are wondering what this looks like, I think it would be a good point to sort of to just get into some examples of the kinds of things that that these teachers were doing in order to sort of to illustrate what CDM is. And you could apply it to a number of things. I know that there's lots of examples in the book of how it's applied to the classroom environment, to curriculum, to the way that behaviour is, is managed and consequences and so on. There are a few examples that spring out to me, but I don't want to sort of put words into your mouth. So um, I'd just like you to, to sort of to, to pick a few of your own, if you like, um, to illustrate for people what, what collaborative decision-making looks like in the day-to-day -day running of classroom life. Well, in the, in the participants, they, they actually appear to confine their CDM to, to a, a fairly narrow group of practices because they were working in schools that didn't do any of this at all. And so there would be design or adaptation of routines. So the teacher would devise routines whereby the pupils could be involved in decision-making. For example, they'd bring in voting techniques. I mean, one thing Carl did was um, he would have uh, cards with numbers on and get, you just call two pupils up to the front and um, the one who got the, because they're doing odd and even numbers, the one that got the odd number could choose um, something um, like the exercise they were going to work on. Um, that they might, the teacher might introduce philosophy for children sessions. So it's the teacher devising routines that involve children in discussions and decision making. Or they would devise routines with pupils, for example, the class might discuss a way to select pupils to carry out classroom tasks. So, you know, there's going to be tasks. How can we decide who's going to do these tasks? So design the routines with the pupils. All routines would be suggested by pupils. For example, um, uh, a pupil might suggest a new way for the teacher to get the class's attention. So that kind of thing. Most frequently it was... In, the, in, the, in my research was when there was a problem, such as a problem with behavioral conduct um, or time or use of equipment, the class would be invited to discuss it with the teacher. So the teacher would say, um, I've noticed recently that people are, are, are not really looking after the, the PE equipment and it's all being left all over the room. Um, does anyone else feel the same way about this, or am I the only one who thinks it's a problem? So first of all, ascertaining that is—is is there a perception of the problem with the people, with the pupils? And then, well, what can we do about this? So that actually, not feeling that as a teacher you have to solve every problem yourself was a big thing, um, and just using sort of opportunistic. Um, taking opportunities as they arose. 
to, to involve the pupils in, in a discussion and a decision about things that happen in the classroom. Um, or the teacher would invite pupils to offer su suggestions about how things could be organised in the classroom. So um, uh, it might be um, we're spending a lot of time um, giving out and collecting equipment. Um, can you help me find a way of, of um, uh, come up with some suggestions how we might do this better? Um, so in my my research, no no participant was using CDM consistently <laughs> for any particular thing. It was very opportunistic and haphazard. Um, yes. But they had this thread of belief going through their whole teaching. This is what they really would like to do all the time, but felt um, uh, very restricted by expectations for having um, to write lesson plans for a whole term before they even knew what the children knew, um, for not being able to respond to children's interests and, and knowledge uh, as they found it out, to kind of keep the children's knowledge at the door and experiences at the door. But I'd be, I'd be interested to know which ones um, you were interested in because I know the ones that sort of bed something to me, but uh, as a reader, what, which ones did you find interesting? Well, there was a, there was a few. Maybe I mean, there's not really any any sort of great system to this. So one of them was the thing about fox poo. <laughs> um, I like that one. I like about that story is is that what it shows about children's natural inclinations. Shall I, shall I say what that story was about? Yeah, please do. So, in in uh, this particular school, uh, they have a big problem in a certain uh, season of foxes coming and um, leaving little little parcels all over the playground. And apparently fox poo is much worse smelling than dog poo. So um, as they came into the classroom, this teacher would, um, uh, they'd all line up ready to have uh, their shoes checked. And the teacher would choose someone to check their shoes before they came into the classroom. So after break, the teacher would drive it in the classroom and the whole class would be in line with hands up because they wanted to be the poo checker. Choose me as poo checker. Um, so that went on those days. But one day, um, uh, the teacher said, um, okay, um, Joe, you can be um, fox poo checker. And Joe said, I choose Sarah, whatever the name was, to be fox poo checker. So Sarah checked the fox poo, not the one the teacher had chosen. And every time, and the teacher didn't say anything about it, just let it happen. And from that day onwards, the person the teacher chose would choose another pupil. And what was interesting is they would start to choose pupils that, because to choose a pupil is a real gift to be chosen by another pupil. Yeah. Um, and they they started choosing pupils who were um, the quieter, least chosen maybe the pupils who needed a bit more help to be included or a sense of belonging. So he just found this so touching. In fact, when he was, when Carl was describing this to me, he was, he was quite moved. Um, but what he, he was also proud because he said, I, I've helped to build this culture where pupils really want to support each other and to help everyone to belong. And, um, 
the fact that they felt they could do that in my class really pleased me. And actually, after that, I've used this as a kind of intervention. When, when teachers say to me, oh, there's a pupil who always wants to be first or is always interrupting, maybe someone who's got a high need for, uh, for power at that, at that time, um, I say, well, just why don't you ask them to, um, to choose, be the one who chooses going, goes, who goes first in the line or chooses who speaks first. And um, they will rarely choose themselves. I can almost guarantee they won't choose themselves. But you say you can choose yourself. But having the power to choose is more fulfilling than being the first in the row, mm. they found. I've also found this works with um, uh, toddlers who are jealous of new babies. If you ask them, um, you, you start playing with them and say, should we... Should we play by ourselves or should we, should we play with the baby too? Can the baby come with us too? And they can, you can, you can say no, we'll just play us two together or, we, or you can agree to have the baby. And they nearly always say, yeah, bring baby over. Because once you give them the power to make that decision and it's their decision, they're happy with it. So it's a quite a powerful uh, bit of, I'd say, manipulation. <laughs> um, but if you don't use it as a manipulation, but you use it as a way to get um, consensus and to help people to have their needs met, I think that's that's positive. Yeah. We've just just on from that, and it raised another story is is um, when the teacher said uh, there was someone he stood in front of the class and he said there were a couple of um, boys in this class who've not yet learned to be really be part of the class and you everyone knows who they are but i'm going to be patient with these boys because they really need to learn how to be full members of the class but i want you to be patient with me while i'm patient with them because it might appear like they're getting away with stuff so i need you to support me um and because i need you to understand you might think it's not fair at some times, but will you will you support me while I do this? And so it's okay to say no, but they all said they would, and they did. And by the end of that year, one of the boy's mothers told this teacher, you saved my boy's life, because he really was going down the road where he was feeling so useless and bad about himself. I was really worried that he might harm himself. So he said, literally, you have saved, I think you've saved his life. Because now he really feels part of the class. He hasn't been taught outside the class any time in the last two terms. But in the last two years, he's hardly been in the classroom. So I think that's really powerful. Yeah, well, it does run deep, this stuff. Like, like on, at surface level, you know, the, we were just talking about fox poo. There's another example that was in the book that was about, you know, like um, teachers involving the children in how to design the, the classroom displays. So you talk about, for example, there was one teacher who said that she had involved her six-year-old's um, her six-year-old pupils in decisions about which learning aids they would like on the classroom wall and where these should be placed. The children told her that they wanted a number line to help them with their counting and would like to write and colour in the numbers themselves, they decided that the number line should be placed at chest height so that they could run their fingers along the numbers as they counted. 
And like again, at face value, that seems like a fairly sort of superficial concession to make. It's like okay, like we're going to probably put a number line up anyway. You know, the the teacher might hang it from the ceiling ordinarily or put it up high somewhere so that everybody could see it easily. And so, you know, like understanding the 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 classroom from the child's eye view comes through that. But there's also something deeper that's going on here, which is that you're moving from a coercive environment into something that's much more sort of consent based where the children's uh, voices are listened to and valued and acted on, importantly. And that has really deep-rooted consequences, I think, for the young people's psychological development. And I think that there's there's quite good... So, so, so if we... Uh, we may be jumping around a little bit here, but in Chapter 2, you, sort of, you talk about the rationale for... Um, and like the psychology that sort of underpins... Um, collaborative decision making. So first of all, that you, you draw upon some research. So for example, you said that there was a, a large UK-based study, um, Professor Lynn Davies and her team looking at the involvement of pupils in decision making um, with a recognisable social and or educational outcome. They analysed 75 studies, so this is a meta-analysis that met this criteria and found a positive link between participation in school decision-making and a range of outcomes that the, that the pupils felt happier and felt more in control of their learning. They developed uh, enhanced skills of communication, which you would expect because there's this, there's this to and fro. Communication is, people often think of communication as in like, oh, I'm going to teach you how to deliver a really good speech. But the art of communication is speaking and listening and give and take and knowing when to bite your tongue and how to negotiate a shared space in a world that's made of other people. Um, and also then Davies' work highlights skills in specific curriculum areas and you highlight a few of the few of the studies. Um, but there's also, you know, the, there are these sort of these big ideas that, that's, that underpin this work, things around choice theory, Glasser's work on choice theory, Kohlberg's work on the stages of moral development. There's a thing called the theory of planned behaviour. Um, I wonder if you'd like to speak to any of that as a, as a, as a, and also these ideas of like social justice and democracy that underpin this work, because although it's su at, at surface level, you just think, oh, this is just about where we where we place the number line and who checks the poo. But actually, there's something much, much deeper going on here. So so let, let's let's sort of get into some of the, the, the big ideas that underpin this. Um, where would you like to begin? I think I'll mention Glass's choice theory, because that has been um that was a significant learning experience for me, discovering Glasser's choice theory. I've probably been an EP for um, 15 years or so when I discovered this. And um, I'll tell, tell you how it happened. I was in the secondary school, chatting to the Senko, and the school had recently started a, a um, I think, a, a no excuses policy um, Zero tolerance, that's the word. Zero tolerance policy for basically anything. And so every night, the school hall was full of people having detention. And I said to, her name was Penny Carr, she's an Australian teacher. And uh, I said to Penny, what psychological theory is this based on? Because it's not one I'm familiar with, that this is going to improve anything. And she said, no, the school I came from in Australia had got rid of all punishments and all detention. And my ears pricked up and I goes, wow, tell me about it. And she said, everybody in the school had been trained in something called choice theory. So uh, I said, how do I learn about this? She said, there's a book called Choice Theory by William Glasser. And um, 
get rid of all coercion and threats in school because it doesn't have a place in education and learning. And that was a school in a, a pretty uh, rough area. Uh, I'm not sure which the, the city was, but there were regular uh, drive-bys and shootings in the area. So it was, uh, and there were a lot of pupils with uh, parents and relatives in prison. So the head teacher didn't want to use the word detention anywhere near the school. So if this is a school, is a safe place for people. It's not a place for detention. Anyway, I, I then, to cut a long story short, trained as a trainer in choice theory and reality therapy. And that's based on the idea that our behaviours are driven or strongly influenced by um, five innate basic needs. So it, it'll sound familiar to the sort of Maslow people, I suppose, uh, but I like five because you can, you've got five fingers in your hand, you remember them, and uh, you can teach this to five-year-olds. And I've seen it taught to five-year-olds. Um, so you have the physical need of survival and, and health and comfort, I'd say. Then there's love and belonging, fun and freedom, self-worth and power, and um, the fun and enjoyment, sorry, that's freedom. So love, power, fun and freedom. Make it short. Now, Glasser also says that those are the basic needs, but we, we have a kind of mental photo album of all the uh, experiences, things, people, places that we perceive are needs satisfying, meet these, these needs. And they might be things we've experienced or things in the future. And school needs to be in this book. A picture of school needs to be in our quality world, the way he describes it, this picture, mental picture book. Um, so teach, part of teachers' jobs is to make sure that they and school are in a pupil's quality world. So the pupil feels that, that feel they belong, they feel they're having fun there, they feel free, and they feel important and comfortable and safe. So by um, reflecting on these needs and saying, what does it take to be a classroom where people feel a sense of belonging, fun, freedom, safety, um, uh, and power, self-worth. And um, really, this ticks the box. CDM ticks the box for a lot of these. It's a communal decision-making. It's about people listening to each other's needs and taking those on board, realizing that people have different points of view. Um, it's about being able to um, make changes in your own environment and in your own lives. That's that's both self-worth and, and freedom. It's about being able to question what's going on and to let people know when you're uncomfortable about what's going along. So the reason it works is that instead of our creative system having to work out, oh, how can I have more fun? Oh, how can I get feel a bit more important in class? These needs are already been met, so it frees up the creative system for learning. Because if you have to be spending the time um, finding ways of feeling safer, of, of feeling free from bullying or, or being shamed from the teacher, if you don't feel safe, if you're not enjoying what you're doing, then naturally the creative system is hijacked. It's a bit like when you're dying to go to the toilet. very difficult to pay attention to a lecture if you're really desperate to go to the toilet. Um, well, these needs 
are as important as the need to we. This is what Glasser says, they're as innate, and it's a kind of homeostasis, that these needs, when they're not met, start knocking on your door and demanding to be met, and your creative system creates ways of meeting these needs, which may not be um, the ones the teacher wants. Yeah, well, that's fascinating, isn't it? I, I was having a conversation recently with a previous guest called Naomi Fisher, uh, and she was talking a lot about something that's quite similar, it's like the idea of, of self-directed uh, learning theory, where, yes. where it's Desi and Ryan, where you need, they, they talk about you need three things in order to become a sort of, you know, a fully functioning, you know, person, one of them being autonomy, one being competency, and one being relationships, like the, the social, the social dimension. And that, um, you know, often, like you say, children will find those elsewhere. And, and if you look at kids who are playing computer games, for example, often they're getting all three of those things in spades, you know, they, they've got yes. com competency in it, they're really, you know, they can do th incredible things. My son blows my mind with what he can do on a games, on a games console. Um, it's social, you know, they're plugged into their friends and they're problem solving together and they're planning and they're having fun and so on. Uh, and they, they have autonomy, they can choose what they want to do. And so they will find they'll find ways to, to have those needs met elsewhere, if they're not getting them uh, in the classroom, it seems. Um, and, and so let's just quickly, I'll just pull out the, those other two, because I think that like, there's, there's, a, there's a key sort of theme that runs through all of this. The second one was Kohlberg's stages of moral development. And this, I'm quoting from your own book here, if you'll, yes. if you'll permit me. Um, this theory proposes that when somebody discusses moral issues with others who are already at a higher level of moral development, they will shift towards that upper level. This shift will only happen if there is some closeness or feeling of similarity with the other person. Um, and so we can see how that like, moral decision making starts to happen there because they're making decisions collaboratively mm. and therefore it's impacting on other people's um, lives and so on. I'd like to just pick up on that actually before we go on. In that section, you you write that there's you write a word of warning. CDM can have negative repercussions if used as a means of control or manipulation. Could you expand yes. on that, please? It's interesting. In, in a previous podcast you made with Mary Helen uh, Imodino Yang, is that how you say her name? Yeah. Um, on neuro neurobiological arguments for progressive education or something with a, a similar title. Yeah. Um, she said a similar thing that um, if if people, if young people, anyone, an individual perceives that they are being um, uh, in, involved and included and given um, uh, a sense of belonging for someone else's purposes rather than for their own rights, then that can backfire because they once you start to have any perception that you're being manipulated, uh, you will actually dig your heels in and and stop wanting to do it. So um, for example, if you if, if um, someone started to, to to bribe me to do something that I wanted to do anyway, um, I might stop doing it because I don't want to be manipulated by other people. Um, so it's really having a, a clear outline that this is, I'm not doing this so that you can do what I want. Yeah. So if you look, I think Mary Helen said something along the lines of, if you know that um, 
by making people feel good about themselves, they learn better or behave better. If you do it only to make them behave better, rather than because it's a human right and it's the right thing to do, um, people will resist um, and start to be uh, um, very suspicious of, of your, your purposes. So it's a bit like, um, what's the example I was just going to give? Um, I'll it. It'll come back. <laughs> oh, don't worry. If it comes back, that's fine. Yeah, thank you. I can see how that would, yeah, th- that it could backfire in quite a serious way because they would be become mistrustful of people who look like they're trying to be consultative, but they think, actually, you have an agenda here and you're just trying to sort of make me feel like I've been listened to. Um, I think I know what that... I was going to say. It's a bit like if, if you feel that someone is bullying you, then you will interpret all their behaviours in that way. So if, even if a bully says to you, um, uh, I like your new hairstyle, you're going to take it as a sarcasm because you're interpreting in, in your perception of that person. So every, once you feel you're being manipulated, you will interpret all their behavior in the light of manipulation, and it will be very difficult to get them back. They will, you will put that person's picture out of your quality world and if they're a teacher, you'll also put their subject out in your quality world. And if it's, you'll also put school and things to do with school, reading, books, out of your quality world. So it it can be quite catastrophic and far-reaching. Yes, yeah, I can see that. Thank you. It's an interesting and important point to make, I think. And then, so the third one of these is this this uh, the theory of planned behaviour. Uh, this was developed in the 80s. This describes the factors that affect the probability that an individual will engage in any given behaviour. Um, you go on to say, this theory helps to explain why peoples are more likely to engage and stick to decisions that they have contributed to. Uh, the theory of planned behaviour states that the likelihood of an individual engaging in a given behaviour is increased if they... There's three, three criteria. One, if they value that behaviour... Two, if they believe that their peers or others that they identify with or admire approve of that behaviour. And thirdly, if they believe that the behaviour is under their control. Um, and you can see this, you know, we see this in very, very young children, don't we? That sort of, that me do it sort of, you know, like um, uh, behaviour that you get in very young children. Like they don't like things to be done for them. They're much more invested in things. And if you try to solve <laughs> a problem for them, they just lose interest in it in a, in a, in a, in a moment. And so we can see how like agency uh, runs through all three of these ideas that the presence or absence of agency can can really influence how we feel about ourselves, about our learning and about our social relationships. And then you go on to ask this question, would you rather have children who feel disengaged and powerless or have children who are actively involved in designing their education and their future? And it's such a a powerful question <laughs> because because the answer is really obvious and yet we are where we are like we are where we are where there are many people who feel who do feel disengaged and powerless not just in schools but to go back to to Naomi Fisher she was talking about as a, as a clinical psychologist who yeah. works with children but also with adults often when she's working with adults they often say like I feel I feel powerless I don't feel like I can like I can change the circumstances of my life whatever the problem's are that they might be going through they're in a, having you know their business is going down the tubes or they might be having problems in their relationships or financial worries or whatever it might be um but they're like i don't feel like i can change things and it's 
and 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 often young people they never practice those skills they never practice being agentic you know actors in in civil society yeah. Yeah. and then when when um as you get older and you know the proverbial hits the fan as it were you find that you don't have the tools the the dispositions the mental sort of wherewithal to be able to deal with you know with with the the, the difficult hands that life deals to all of us at some point mm. it sort of seems so self evident that we should be you know, using school as an opportunity. I'm just trying to understand, like, at what point did we decide, was it decided that the best way to prepare young people for life is to to, to, to deliver to them a diet of exclusively subject-based learning, you know, which is what we've got. And and this stuff, you know, that like you were saying, that like even even these teachers who you were finding that, you know, like CDM was featuring in their in their work, it wasn't featuring consistently and it wasn't reflected in the wider school. This is a very sort of a fringe activity at the moment, you know. It is. Um, and there's there's a lovely, we'll maybe come on to, the, there's a lovely vignette that you paint of a sort of a, what, a, what a CDM school might look like if it was to be fully realised. Um, but it's just an interesting point to, to, to rest on for a moment. Like, why are we having to ask this question? Why Why is it that we're not actively involving young people in designing their own education and their future and helping them to feel like agentic people who can make decisions and and who can contribute and shape the world in some way is that a question <laughs> <laughs> i think it was i've got to just think pretend it was i'll i'll raise i'll raise my voice at the end of it why is it that yeah i think the i think the question is why are we at this point i mean it's a really hard question to ask but what do you think the what do you think the the resistance is to this idea? Why why have we why have we designed a, a very coercive controlling education system? I'm not an expert on this, but I, I'm told that the history of how we view children is quite important in this. So um, viewing children as 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 needy and dependent, um, and almost um, Go move the move away from children as as child labourers um, who are just like adults to being children who need a protected childhood has maybe gone too far that children um, ought to be have much expected of them ought to be trusted um, and certainly not uh, relied upon for designing anything that affects anyone else. Um, I think that's it's interesting to widen that to people who've studied the way children are viewed in different cultures and um, and throughout history. Um, I think we're just uh, moving towards a, a more and more authoritarian world of external control. Um, just see it all around us, really. Yeah, yeah. I think that I think that you're right. Um, there is a there is a lot of it around, and it's and it, I mean it's also important to recognise that at least with regard to uh, to to the way that schools run, we're really describing English schools at the moment, and and not all English schools certainly, but um, in other in in other countries in the UK and elsewhere around the world. I was talking to somebody the other day in Canada who was saying that the the, the school curriculum in British Columbia is pretty good, like it involves lots of. of student voice and student agency and they're getting to 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 shape this in some sense 
But there are many sort of like wide wider issues, societal issues that uh, that come to bear here. And this is something else. While we're talking about a rationale for why we should be doing this stuff, you talk in this in this same chapter about the rationale about safety and well being. And this is another quote. You say when we hear about children being recruited into terrorism and criminal gangs and what have you, it can often feel like there's really nothing that we can do about this in school. On the other hand, how can children resist the criminal grooming of malevolent adults after years of being told that adults are always right? If children are told through school that they must never question an adult's instruction, nor speak up when they feel they've been unjustly treated, how can they, expect, how can they be expected to respond when they're asked to do something that feels uncomfortable or wrong? You know, that, that's a really important thing, isn't it? And an important aspect, I suppose, of, of CDM is the, is the ability to say no to stuff, like to practice yes. saying no. That's really important. Um, so that there are and, and, and the other thing that, that attaches to this is all of this stuff that we've been seeing recently. Do you, do you know this thing about the, the website Everyone's Invited, um, where it was all about all of the, the, the sexual abuse that's happening yes. um, that's really widespread in schools? And this is often, you know, discussed elsewhere as well, obviously, in the sort of post Harvey Weinstein, post the Me Too movement, people are starting to really come to terms with this. But it really does seem that there's a that there's a problem in in that, that starts in schools and then goes out into society. There's this horrendous uh, news stories that I've seen recently where people like the, 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 there's girls who like in, in clubs, they give you a cover for your drink now. That, so that there's just mm -hmm. like a, a rubber cover for it. But the more recently, people have started to like the wearing thick denim because the because the, there's been people who physically are injecting women in clubs with with um, with sedative drugs, which is just horrendous. It's, it's absolutely appalling, um, but it's happening and it's widespread. And we have to question, I think, the fact that these young men have gone through a process which was not at all consent based like that they they, they, they they never really talked about consent maybe in a lesson or two of pshe at some point but it wouldn't have been done in a meaningful way where like you learn how to respect the rights of other people um i mean these are very deep rooted and serious problems and i wouldn't want to trivialize them and just say that this is all down to you know how we manage behavior in schools um but I think that the question needs to be asked at the very least. Well, one, one thing that William Glasser says um, is that he, he's dead now, but I did meet him a couple of times. And he, he said that, why do we ask, why do we put up with coercion, threats and external control? And he said, um, sometimes because you have no option. And secondly, because you, you save it up and, and you think, well, my turn will come when I can use this from someone else. And one of the things that um, I think his teachers are very aware of is that when you respond to something in the classroom, you're teaching them a lesson. So when you respond to someone who disagrees with you, everyone is watching. That's the most entertaining part of the school week, really, when someone disagrees with a teacher. Um, or starts misbehaving because it's interesting. It's, it's it's fun to have that going on in the classroom when it's a bit boring. And um, so everyone watches to see what's the teacher going to do about this. And the, what the teacher does is teach them what to do when someone disagrees with you. And the lesson they're getting taught in many classrooms is you threaten that person 
and hurt them and belittle them, shame them. So when you get, they're watching this and they go, oh, so that's what you do when someone disagrees with you. Oh, that's what you do when you're in a bit of a corner. You, you put people down and you threaten them. So, yeah, oh, that's, that's what I'll have to do when someone threatens me or when, 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 when someone disagrees with me. On the other hand, if you're in a classroom where someone starts acting up and the teacher sits down with them and, and the class are watching, and I think it's always good if you can sort these things out in the classroom because you're teaching them a lesson, you're teaching them something about life. And you sit down with the, the youngster and you say, you're not enjoying this lesson very much, are you? And and they go, no, and go, well, what might help this lesson to be a bit more enjoyable for you? Or um, is it always like this in French? Science. And the others are looking and going, gosh, that's brave. Or is that what you do? And they realize that you de-escalate by talking and you find something out about the problem and it wasn't as it appeared at the first place and you learn something about the teacher and you learn something about the pupil. You also learn something about how to deal with difficult situations, which is you sit down and talk about it. Now, the, the children in the classrooms where teachers use collaborative decision-making, CDM, when they go on to be parents, managers, teachers, police officers, whatever, they practiced, as you said, or partners um, in a relationship, they practiced right from being very young how you uh, articulate a perceived problem and bring others into a conversation in a non-threatening way. So they're actually as, as, as skilled in those skills as, as they are in, in adding single-digit numbers, you know? And some people say, well, why should we do this in schools? What's it lead to? You know, does it lead to better behavior, better exam results, etc.? And a lot of me says, well, it's an end in itself for the individual and society. We've, we've come to this uh, rather mistaken belief that reading and, and uh, the literacy and numeracy are ends in themselves. They're not. They're just tools for something else. But, you know, if you've done well on reading tests and well on math tests, somehow you've achieved a great education. No, you've just become good at some tools which you can either use or not. There's many other things you've got to do before reading becomes useful or numeracy becomes useful. You've got to apply it in, in different settings and understand a lot, a lot more. Why not have participation in decision-making just as an end in itself? It's, it's a skill that's been recognized as very much a skill for the future. Um, in industry, uh, innovation has been recognized, takes part, part for the most part through collaboration. It's rare that one individual not working with other people, who doesn't work with other people and get influenced and supported by them, can come up with great innovations. It tends to be collaborative work. When you get collaboration in, in hospitals between different departments, you, you, you get better outcomes for, for the patients. When you collaborate with the patients themselves, you get better outcomes. 
Yeah, I was meaning to ask you about that. There was some some evidence that you mentioned early on in the book about even working with very young children where they, they, they get to have a say in what dose of medication they would like to take, that they often take uh, less medication than the doctors would have prescribed, that they're able to control their, their drug regime um, more effectively. And that... I, thought, I thought it was fascinating, that one. Yes, it was pain pain relief. Um, you had in young children when their the doctors... Um, involved the the children in um, in saying what level of dosage they would need to control the pain. They, on the whole, selected a lower dosage than the doctors would previously have given. Yeah, yeah, it's absolutely fascinating, and there's a number of examples of this in in healthcare. Um, so, so thinking about about the sort of the practicalities, this is something that, like we said earlier, it's currently quite a fringe. Um, activity it happens to a certain extent and by the way I would have been <laughs> I would have been a willing participant um, in your <laughs> in your research because a few years ago um, you know in, in the in the research that I did my PhD on this learning to learn curriculum that we were involved in there was a ton of CDM happening in that curriculum where the children were uh, were able to choose what projects they focused on who they worked with um, whether they worked alone or in groups um, what we talked about in philosophical inquiry sessions we we did a whole we did one one project where we did it was called the two pound challenge where we gave each kid two quid and we shared with them you know the parable of the talents the story from the bible where there's a there's a the father gives his son each um some money and they all they all use it in different ways and how to how to sort of you know to use it to to grow to grow and so on and so they they had to either you know they would go and buy a bucket and wash cars in their local street or some of them were buying and selling stuff and what have you and they had to they had to keep receipts and they had to show that they've made enough money to go on a school trip that they themselves decided where we would go so they were looking at France first of all and then they realized that it was just too much hassle and it was too expensive and so they settled on Thorpe Park um and that was democratically arrived at among the whole year group and they did the whole thing. They booked it. They booked the they booked the transport. They found the cheapest place to get coaches. They did the risk assessments. They did the whole thing, and they raised the money themselves. Um, and I know there was an example that was quite similar to that in the book as well. Um, and it wasn't something that we were thinking about in terms of collaborative decision making at the time. We definitely were were thinking that we wanted to give the kids an opportunity to to just do things that they hadn't done before and to, to set them a you know what would be a difficult challenge you know to organize a school trip like for, 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 without ever having done that before there's quite a lot in that and lots of teachers sort of struggle with it there's lots of things to to bear in mind and you've got to think about first aid and all of that stuff um and so to involve the the, the children in doing that um you know it just sort of came naturally to us at the time but again you know like we are <laughs> we are like um on the on the fringes um of what happens this this is not mainstream practice and thinking about the problems with it going mainstream one of them is is about assessment and and it seems to me that, that there's there's quite a fundamental sort of idea that sits at the heart of this whole enterprise which was illustrated in a, in another story from the book, which was about the Google. There was like a visit to the school by some big people from Google, and it was about virtual reality. And then the teacher had planned that the children were going to come back to the classroom and write a poem about what the, about the VR thing and what they meant, what they think VR means for the world, or what have you. And then the teacher sort of 
catches themselves in the moment and thinks, oh, I'm not going to do the poem. I'm just going to say, here's a bunch of resources. There's the felt tips and pens and what have you. Just express your thoughts and feelings about virtual reality in, w in whatever way you, you deem fit. And the children worked really hard on it. And I've found this before as well, that often when you take away the assessment, when, you, when, when children are just doing a piece of work just for the sake of the piece of work, they often work on it really, really hard. And in the book, you were talking about how some of the students who really struggled with writing really took their time and effort and they did some of their best ever writing that they'd ever done <laughs> and so on. But it resulted in 30 original pieces of work that were com all completely different to one another and therefore are completely ungradable. And that's sort <laughs> of like what's the what happens when you do that is like, like the, the, what what I mean when I was saying that there's this the idea that sits at the core of all of this is the need to compare children by making them all do exactly the same thing so that we can sort of compare them on the level playing field as it were and that's why so many people are really committed to the idea of keeping exams and I know that some people are saying we should move away from exams at the moment in the light of Covid and what have you but they say that exams are sort of a bit like what Winston Churchill said about democracy they're like the worst form of assessment that we could have come up with apart from everything else because you know teacher assessment often you know inflates students grades and often also teachers downgrade children from from lower socioeconomic groups there's evidence to, to suggest that and so this this desire to sort of to try to come up with some fair way of measuring children in some sense by forcing them to all go through this same process will be the least bad thing that we can do but it doesn't have to be that way you know like we could come up with something that was much more along the lines of like let a thousand flowers bloom and let each kid have a sort of a digital you know portfolio or whatever it might be where we we can we can work with this with this more diverse way of doing things where they are involved in you know deciding how to express their learning and we don't necessarily need to compare them all um, by making them all go through the same sort of funnel of, of, well, the GCSE being one of them, but, you know, Key Stage 2 SATs or the phonics screen. There's a number of them throughout throughout their time in school. Um, but it's a, it's a tough one to wrestle with that because lots of people are very committed to this idea that we have to get them all to go through the same thing. And that's why I say that this idea sits at the heart of it because that's the rationale for all of the coercion and the control and the behaviour management and so on because it's like, we're trying to get every, there's an end goal that we have in mind here and we need to get everybody to, to to have the best chance of succeeding in this end goal even though we know that you know by definition almost some of them will fail that process um that's another bit of a ramble without a question mark on the end but what is what is promoted in my my thinking as you were just talking um because i was thinking oh that's a huge question how can we ever um, address it but what came into my head was it's all about fear fear of failure it's about um the teacher feeling then they will be uh, seen by their colleagues first of all as not being a good teacher by by seeing as uh, by the head as not being or parents as not being good enough teacher um schools worrying that they will be um uh judged as insufficient inadequate by ofsted it's a fear of the country of the department for education that on the PISA um, tables, they will look low compared to other countries. It's a fear of their own being judged by others as, as to be insufficient. I don't think it's a fear that they're not going to give a good enough 
education. It's it's a fear of judgment by by others down to you know where you are in PISA um, and the OECD tables, as it were. Um, yeah, I think if we could maybe um, this is my pie in the sky thinking um, that if we were able to have Ofsted saying we're going to have schools which are given some freedom to experiment and take the fear away that we we are going to guarantee you will not get a judgment below good that it's been a school that's been good but we're going to allow you to try some new things and we we want you to to evaluate them and to um maybe the the, the schools that were doing cdm would as i suggested in the book in chapter on evaluation involve the teachers and the pupils in defining how they would be evaluated so i don't see anything wrong in um involving young people in defining what it means to thrive for example or to have, have a successful lesson or to um to feel the a year in a class was worthwhile I think they would be able to come up with some good uh, metrics for these. But I think that schools need protection and it takes a confident department for education, not worried about PISA and, and recriminations from other countries to, and, and from maybe from uh, other ministers to, um, to put some protection around schools to have a go at these things. I mean, I'm very pleased this morning, um, I got a message, I, I missed a call this morning um, from a school in Watford where they've read my book and they've started to do their own uh, meetings around it and they said, we've got a bit of money and can you come in and, and we'd really like you to influence our school more. Um, and um, that's one school. <laughs> so that's, I, I think we only need a, a cluster of schools um, who are mainstream state schools showing that actually um, this can happen as a whole school approach and this is what it looks like. We just need a few examples and to learn from their um, their experiences as well. Maybe then they can help write the next book. So, so let's come on to to thinking about what this might look like. I really like in the in the spirit of rethinking education. There's a nice bit where you sort of you paint this picture of a, of a school. I'm gonna I'll read this out. It's a bit of an extended yeah. excerpt. It says um, pupils arrive at this school early to set out equipment for the day's work, make breakfast and coffee for teachers and fellow pupils, and set up clubs of their own to develop skills and help other pupils who are struggling with work. Pupils get down to work as soon as they're ready and do not have to wait until the slowest pupil is ready. It is almost as common to see a pupil talking to the whole class as it is to see a teacher doing this. On joining the school, younger pupils are taught by the older pupils how to care for one another and their classroom. Pupils can apply to take part in training programmes run by school support staff in office administration, including stock taking, money handling and banking, photocopier maintenance, ordering, telephony, organisation of publicity for school events and so on, building maintenance, including paintwork, gardening, heating systems, furniture maintenance, path cleaning and gritting, 
and catering, including hygiene, portion control, budgeting, presentation, food preparation, maintenance, and safe operation of equipment. Following successful completion of these programs, the pupils can apply to hold a responsibility based on their skill competence. Staff and pupils can relax and carry out their planning and homework together in several areas throughout the school. There are frequent discussions which involve both pupils and staff about how to improve the quality of different aspects of the way that the school works. And then you go on to say, where is this school? How did they achieve this? I have yet to come across such a school. Um, so it doesn't, I mean, I mean, I suppose that the closest that I've seen is, um, so I used to work at a place in Brighton called the Self-Managed Learning College, SMLC, um, and it literally is self-managed. It's um, It's got the children there are, from, are aged uh, sort of nine to 16 um, it's run by a guy. If you if you're interested to listen back, yes. and any listeners, the, the episodes two and four of the podcast was, was uh, it was spread across two episodes because I had an epic five hour conversation with um, the guy who set this thing up called Ian Cunningham, and that is pretty close to how it works. It's a democratic learning community. It's not a state school. It's you know it used yes. to it used to be funded by the council and then they withdrew that funding so now it's it unfortunately has to charge fees but they're very very low and the kids for example they have a budget and they they decide how to what to spend to to for their snacks and they buy you know a big tub of peanut butter and like loaves of bread and what have you for the kitchen and they do the cleaning themselves to save money on a cleaner and they do a really good job they're mopping and you know cleaning out the toilets and urinals and what have you and they do a re- they do a really good job um, and it's an incredible place, um, but it's definitely not. You know, it's a it's a fringe thing again. It's not a mainstream school, and I'm I'm I'd love to see to to think through how, you know how this could could take more of a more of a of a role in the running of of large mainstream schools. I'm certain that there are many examples that around which we can you know we can do this collaborative decision making. Um, in ways that that don't sort of necessarily fundamentally change the whole game that we're playing, but that just sort of start, you know, there are ways of starting small with this, aren't there? I think that um, I I gather examples from everywhere. And um, one of the places was a a BBC series probably about um, maybe 10 years ago called The African School. And um, they, they, it was probably a world service program, series of programs. And, in this uh, particular African school, they didn't have enough space to teach uh, everyone at once. So the um, the older pupils would come in early in the morning. They would prepare the food for the school and put them on like a slow cooker and do a bit of cleaning. Then they would have their lessons in the morning. And then in the afternoon, those same pupils would return and teach the younger pupils. And... Um, so there were those examples. There was another example from a, a radio station that a group of girls had set up. I can't remember. It had a great name. Uh, I can't remember the name now. But um, they set this up in order to prepare girls to be successful when they entered school because they found that um, the, the girls were not doing as well as the boys when they were entering school at six or seven. So they wanted to give the girls a bit of a head start and these were teenage girls themselves, only 12 to 14-year-olds. And, um, and so they set this organisation up to, to teach their younger sisters and cousins and, and girls in their villages how to read before they went to school so that they would have a, a, give them a, a leg up 
into the education system. So another one was Japanese schools, a program again on, do you remember Teachers TV? Yeah. Yeah, well, they had a program on some Japanese schools where um, they have a tradition in, in Japan of, of service. And as part of that, and this was in every Japanese school, and I've since talked to people in Japan who've told me it's true, that the children serve the food in the schools. And in this program, it showed the young children, you know, six and seven-year-olds, serving school lunches to fellow pupils. And, um, and their children said the food tastes better when it's served by a child. And it took me back to being four years old and not liking the smell of one of the dinner ladies. And I didn't want to eat in school because this dinner lady smelled funny. And that whole thing about it tastes better when it's served by a child. Um, I thought that was great. So there were lots of things going on through history and around the world, little examples, which is that school description. I've seen probably every one of those parts of the descriptions in, in some place or other. Not necessarily in this country, not necessarily in this time might have read about it. It might be the way the Berbers put their four-year-olds in charge of four goats. Or, you know, it's, it's um, how a school in Ryslip um, taught children knife skills so they could use the kitchen to prepare birthday treats. Uh, it's, I see little snatches of it in different places. And I just thought, well, if it can happen in one place, it can happen in others. Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, so, so, so in the book, you talk about a number of different like areas in which in which CDM could become a way of life. One of them, with regard to the so, so the the five sort of headings are environment, curriculum, policies, shared roles, and around decision oh around decision making, and then that section ends with returning to that thing we were talking about earlier about fear of failure. So with regard to the environment, you know, attention being paid to aspects of the physical environment, toilets, recycling, gardens, school food, like you were just talking about, um, helping identify black spots for litter, helping involving young people in addressing bullying. So, for example, in, in um, the work that I've done, I've often done lots of work in the field of bullying and working with peer mentors to help young people okay. to be involved in helping address um, what are often sort of like bullying tends not to happen between strangers. It either happens between people who are sort of currently sort of in the same social group or like former close friends who now have gone separate ways and they sort of they know how to hurt that person and so there's often sort of like friendship issues um, and so those sorts of environmental and behavioral issues young people can can be involved in in terms of curriculum planning and I'll, I'll maybe come on to that in a moment but I think that there's a really interesting idea for how we can think about how we could involve young people in curriculum planning there's also things about policies, about, for example, you know, the rewards and sanctions that are, that are in place with the school. These are hardly ever, I've never I've ever, ever heard of a school that consults young people in what they think is a fair sort of, you know, consequence and reward system for, you know, for good and for good and undesirable behavior and what have you. Um, so that's a fascinating one. This idea about shared roles, there are many things that young people can do, for example, at parents' evenings where, they're, they're, where it's a student conference that's led by the student rather than just the, the teacher having mm -hmm. to come up with something to say to each kid, to, to the parents of each kid, and the kids are often not even there, you know, um, that they're able to 
you know, to to take that role on for themselves, the young people. And where where those things are done, student student led conferences, it's absolutely incredible. You know, like they're so much more insightful than than the teachers um, reading scores off a spreadsheet could be. Um, and then include the, the fourth one is decision making, you know, including ideas around decision making and, and broadening, you know, the, the decision making aspects of school from the school leadership team to include all teachers and also to include young people where appropriate. Um, and yeah, you, you start to sort of to see like that it would be an incredible place, wouldn't it, to, to work in a to work in a school where all of these different aspects of school life from the physical buildings to the way that we interact to the policies to the actual curriculum to the physical environment of the of the classroom if all of this was in place we would we would i think that we would see a very different world i think that young people who would go through a schooling educa- a schooling experience like that for 10 or 12 years where all of the voices of people were involved and uh, all of these decisions were negotiated and agreed upon yeah. You know, that just seems like it's something that's worth striving towards, doesn't it? One of, one of my participants said something interesting. He said, if schools really were places where you could collaborate with your pupils and, and teach in this way and feel free to teach in this way, we would be fighting off people from being teachers because there would be a rush for people to go into teaching because it's an amazing job. But the thing that stops it being amazing is is our complete lack of agency as teachers about to decide what goes on in our classrooms. Yeah. And he said, no, it is an amazing job, but this is what puts people off. And in fact, the data from the reasons um, why, I'm trying to think of the studies, but um, recent study looking at the reasons why people who've trained in teaching leave within the first two years. What were the reasons? And it, yeah, workload, yeah, behaviour, but actually the top one was lack of agency. Yeah, and it comes out not just in education, but more widely in the world of business and the world of work more widely. People rate agency and autonomy even more highly than how much they get paid. Like people just want to have a little bit of say yeah. over what they do and how they do it. Like it's so, so important. But you know what you say, that word little bit is so true. A little bit is all that people want. And when you don't have to do it all the time, children, given a little bit of a say, lap it up. They they love it. And it. I'm not talking about, to, you know, I'm not not promoting tokenism, but there's if people want to dip their toes in, they're not going to lose out because by giving a bit of a say in something, the children aren't going to then be up in arms when they haven't got to say in everything. They're used to being told what to do. But just just try it. Try it out and see. You know, if you're an employer, try it out and see. One, one of um, my friends who isn't a teacher came to my book launch, and she's a solicitor. And, um, and she said, I haven't read your book, Geraldine, but uh, after the book launch and the conversations people were having, I went back to my office, my practice, and changed changed how I made some decisions because I realised I wasn't involving the employees in the decision-making of the practice. And it, it really just brought it home. Uh, I hadn't even realised I wasn't doing it. I hadn't realised it was a thing. I just did it, worked the way I'd always worked, and I managed the way I had been managed. 
and didn't ever question this, but it made such sense to give people ownership for the decisions. Yeah. But one, one interesting thing that um, I found is, and that the teachers tell me this, that quite often when they give the children a say in how things are done and what they're going to learn or how, they, they come up with what the teacher wanted to do anyway. So it might look like there's no change, but there's a massive change psychologically in what's going on in the children's heads. It might look like they're doing the same things. So they might be even using the same books and the same lessons, but in the children's minds, it's, it's a different universe. You can now, it's their curriculum. They have chosen to do it. Same with a parent who's decided they want to go to the park um, or to the supermarket and they, they offer their uh, three or four-year-old a choice. So, you know, should we go to the, the supermarket or, or first or should we go to the park? And they say, um, the supermarket, when they're in the supermarket, they think they've decided to go there. They still go to the supermarket, which is what the parent wanted them to go to do. But in the child's head, they're doing what I want to do. So it's a world apart. And you alluded to this a little bit earlier, which is when, when we believe that we're learning something that we've chosen to learn, we want to spend our free time doing it. And so when teachers have told me that when they actually involve children in choosing what they're going to learn or even project work, the children will spend the whole weekend preparing for it, making things for it, looking things up. They also talk to their parents about what they're learning because they designed it, they understand it. They fully understand it because they came up with it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, it's something that we like. It feels so intuitively, just sort of sensible. That again, it's hard to understand why we're at the, in the position where this isn't happening. And it, and it applies to as you were just talking about a moment ago to teachers as well. Like lots of the stuff that we've talked about, um, in the examples of the stories of CDM is like at the level of the classroom. Um, but it's also really important that school leaders model CDM with their staff by giving teachers a voice. You write in the book that, um, that your experiences led you to uh, the understanding that teacher voice precedes pupil voice. And there's, there's evidence from Michael Fielding's work that, that teachers who are excluded from decision-making are unlikely to support school initiatives. And this is something that I've been very immersed in recently, <clears throat> is this, this world of implementation science. Um, oh, of course, yes. And um, and the way that we work, like so, the way that schools are usually, that decisions are usually made in schools is that, that it's a black box situation where the, the senior team sits at the top of the school, and that's a black box because nobody can see in. So that you know they don't publish the minutes of their senior leadership meetings. Decisions are just sort of made and then announced in a staff briefing, and it's done in this top-down way. And and if you know one of the things I often ask teachers is like and school leaders, if you look back over your career, what proportion of school improvement initiatives would you say led to lasting, sustained improvements, demonstrable improvements in, in outcomes? And people often go, first of all, they roll their eyes and then they often <laughs> go, oh, it's probably about 10 percent, maybe 20. And if you really push them and say demonstrable gains that are sustained over time, they go, 
actually, yeah, I can't think of a single one. And and every single year that you that you're a teacher, there there is a change initiative or two or three or five being rolled out by the senior team. And hardly any of them actually land and actually lead to any sort of sustained improvements. And that's a remarkable thing. And I think that it's mainly because people don't like being told what to do. <laughs> like even, even when it's a really good idea, people don't like being told what to do. It just sort of, there's something about human nature that it's just, it sort of gets your heckles up. You're being made to do stuff and you just don't buy into it. And and so it, then it becomes a game of like trying to look like you're complying with this new policy. So there's like this, this game of like visibility and you want to sort of send an email and copy everybody in to show that you're, you know, taking on board this new thing. But actually you've not really embraced it. You're not going to, like you say, you're not going to spend your free time doing it. And so this approach to implementation science that I've developed and that I've been working with schools on for the last few years is where we work with a thing called a vertical slice team. So you take a slice through the organization. So there will be a senior leader on the team still, but also middle leaders, early career teachers, teaching who've been teachers who've been teaching you know for 20 or 30 years or more, the special needs coordinator, sometimes kids, parents, governors, whoever it is who's affected by this, if it's about data, maybe the data manager or it might be the you know the, the caretakers might be involved in it, if it's about you know physical stuff um, in the school school buildings. And everybody's included in this process. And and so instead of it being like a black box, it's a glass box. <coughs> Excuse me. Because we we can see out and everybody else can see in. So one of the things we do is this thing called like the five minute interviews. So we come up with a bunch of questions. Let's say that there's a, you know, they're looking at uh, feedback. They're trying to change the school's feedback policy. And so we have this vertical size team and then they go away and they talk to other people. So, for example, the, the, the questions might be, what do you think about this idea of like changing the way that we do feedback? Do you agree that this is a priority for the school? You know, uh, what questions do you have? What concerns or ideas do you have, say? And then they go away and talk to the other people. So, so the teaching assistant goes and talks to other TAs, like a representative sample of different teaching assistants to ask them what do they think about this feedback initiative. The early career teacher talks to other early career teachers, middle leader, and so on and so on. And, and that anonymizes the process of, of sort of data gathering because you, you don't say, oh, so-and-so thinks this is a horrible idea. You just say, oh, it was, a, it, you know, like some people don't, don't think this is a good idea and here's their reasons. So it makes it safe to have this very sort of robust conversation around this feedback policy. And so we can see out in the vertical size team, we can see out, we can know what people are thinking. And the senior leaders who I've run this program with often say, this is the first time that I've ever really felt like I know what the school is thinking. Uh, but also people can see in, they know that there's this change team, that they are represented, that there's somebody like yes. them on yes. that change team. And it just gets buy-in like nothing else. Uh, and it it really works. Um, and that, sounds, that sounds like a really wonderful example of cdm doesn't it yeah yeah i, I think it is i think it is I mean, one of the things that that has also illustrated which i was kind of quite relieved to come across which is um there was a study and i can't remember the name off the top of my head but um where it showed that um if pupils believed that other pupils like them had been involved in the design of tasks they were more happy to carry them out than if they thought they'd just been designed by the teacher so when teachers said, so do we have to involve every single pupil in this decision? The answer is actually no. You have to give people a feeling that at any time they could be involved. But sometimes people are happy for representatives or people like them, as you say, 
to know that people like them are involved in the decision making um, makes them able to relax and, and say, yeah, I know, I know it's going to involve my needs, meet my needs because, because it's been done this, in this way. Well, I think that's, that's an amazing example. And um, I'd love to hear about places where that's happening as well. Yeah, well, so I, I developed this program about three years ago. I've run this training now with about 50 schools all over the world, mostly remotely during during COVID, but some face to face as well. And I've spent most of this year writing a an online course, which is almost ready to, to be launched because I really want to scale this up yeah. much more widely. And there's, you know, there's a lot of schools out there. And there's only so many that I can work with in a one to one way. So the idea of the online course is that we can scale these practices up much more widely and there'll be a book that will follow shortly. Um, but it, yeah, it is a, it is the way forward. I think it just it just brings people with you and you know, the, the, the potential impact that this thing could have, if you think about all of that energy and effort that people are spending on change initiatives that don't lead to any lasting improvements, you yes. know, if you could if you could get that improve that 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 success rate up to 30 percent or 50 percent, say, across the planet, you know, there are six or seven million schools across this planet. Like if you could improve the, the quality of like of school improvement by 50 percent by using this method, then the, out, the, the, the impact in terms of outcomes for young people on their academic learning, on their, you know, their mental health and well-being, on teacher retention, on whatever it is that your school initi initiative is trying to bring about, uh, the potential for this thing to, to, you know, to have a significant impact on people's lives is quite phenomenal, really. Well, it's interesting you're saying about the, uh, the international picture, because I think you're right, there's... It, what coming to me uh, um, from from different quarters are evidence that even in the Pacific Rim countries and and in India, where they're looking at alternatives to corporal punishment, for example, um, if you look at at uh, child friendly learning, if you look up that term, child friendly learning, you get lots of um, lots of uh, uh, papers and, and websites about um, schooling where they stop hitting children. The child learning means you don't hit them. Um, and in, in many countries, that is the, still the case. Um, they're trying to find a way of, of um, getting uh, better conduct without the use of corporal punishment. And um, a bit like places that didn't have copper systems for their telephones going straight to, um, to optic fibers, you know, sometimes the third or the developing world can get there quick more quickly than we do by not having the intervening authoritarian <laughs> education system. Um, but I've been involved recently with um, uh, a weekly meeting with uh, teachers who are trying to teach in this way in different countries, and, and they call themselves surviving teachers because they're in a system which doesn't support CDM. And it's not my it's not my group. I was asked to. to be a member of this group, but there were teachers from Finland, um, America, Brazil, Thailand, Africa, from all countries, and countries like Finland, where you'd think they've got this sorted already, and they haven't. Um, every school gives lip, lip service to involving children in the design of curriculum by asking at the beginning of the school year, what do you want to learn? They write a list and then they put that in a drawer and get on with teaching what they were going to teach them anyway, apparently. They're still asked to be to write um, curriculum plans a term in advance, 
despite um, not finding out what the children know or want to learn about. So it's, I think it is a worldwide thing. So, so, so let's sort of let, let's. I'd like to end on like a nice optimistic note for people who are listening to this, who think you know I want to take these ideas forward. There's something that that you mentioned towards the end of the book, which I thought was fascinating, which is about um, this this study that came from the field of organizational psychology in the '60s about theory X and theory Y. About the different McGregor, yes, yeah, McGregor. So I'll, I'll just share this uh, for listeners. So it's this. This says uh, Professor Douglas McGregor studied approaches to managing people in a range of organisations, including schools, and found that people in authority could be differentiated by two very different sets of assumptions that they held about people. He called these assumptions Theory X and Theory Y. Theory X managers believe that employees are naturally lazy will avoid work if possible, do not cooperate unless coerced, and desire security above all. Holding these beliefs, Theory X managers will use authoritarian approaches and coercion, believing that employees need to be directed, coerced, controlled and bribed, and decisions made without involving the individuals concerned. Goals are imposed and rewards are used to control people's behaviour. People who are managed under Theory X tend to behave as expected. They avoid responsibility, they require external incentives to apply themselves, and they use blame and excuses to avoid the sanctions, which are, are usually a feature of Theory X management. In contrast, the management style associated with Theory Y leads to higher motivation and greater realisation of both individual and organisational goals. Theory Y managers believe in cooperation and collaboration and avoid authoritarian approaches. This is because Theory Y managers assume that employees are naturally inclined to enjoy work. They believe that the more people see work as voluntary, the more satisfying it will be. Employees will exercise self-regulation when they're doing something they really believe in and have committed to themselves, and that they will willingly seek responsibility unless they've had a bad experience of this in the past. I think it's fairly obvious that CDM is very much in line with the theory Y style of management. Yes. But I think that it's something that's an interesting place to start because you you might think if if you're a listener listening to this you might think you know I'm am I a more of a theory X person or a theory Y person. And if you're a theory Y person and you're working in a theory X school and I think that there's probably quite a significant proportion. This is a, just an assumption of mine, but based on the, the conversations that I've been having in the last few months, particularly, I think that there are lots of theory Y people working in theory X schools. Um, you know, th there are mm. things that we can do within theory X schools um, to to change things. You know, we don't have to we don't have to play the game that that pre that predates our entry into the profession we we have the power to change these things um and and it's i think it's important to recognize this idea that cdm collaborative decision making is not an approach or a technique as such you describe it as a as an educational philosophy and it's something that that does seem to sort of to be be tied to this fundamentally like what is your vision of human nature mm. do you believe that children 
and you know and other teachers are inherently feckless and lazy and you know will avoid work and responsibility or do you have a more optimistic vision did you read that book humankind that was published earlier this year or maybe last year by a guy called Rutger Bregman who is like a a reinterpretation of of you know the history of he talks about veneer theory this idea that some people believe that 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 civilization is just a thin veneer over what's essentially our primitive selves and that we're, we're you know seven meals away from cannibalism <laughs> and all that stuff that we're basically savages um and other people have a much more optimistic and his book is an attempt to 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 look at human history through through more uh, through more optimistic lenses um so i think that that's a, a, an interesting place to start like who what are your values what do you think human beings are like fundamentally and are the practices that you practice in your classroom in your department in your school if you're a school leader in your area of responsibility are they aligned and if not you know how might we go through a process of of realigning ourselves in accordance with our values it's interesting. My sister isn't in education, doesn't work in education. She's a she's a, a cellist, a musician. And um and she read the book and she said, you know, this isn't a book about education, this is a, a lifestyle book. It's about lifestyle, it's about how we relate to other people. And um we can either have a lifestyle where we make all the decisions, not just for ourselves, but for other people. We decide that what's best for us is actually also best for everyone else. Or we have uh, a feeling that actually people need to be involved in making decisions that affect them. And that's that's a, life, a lifestyle and it's a, a, a life view. So she said that she thinks the book could be read by anybody um, in, and apply it to their family life, their relationships, their professional life, volunteering whatever because it's uh it's a human principle yeah and i I like that maybe there's a spin-off book here geraldine (laughs) get one in the cell what would you call it it's 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 our life yeah there you go it's our life but i do i do i do when i see um the government trying to work out what to do about violent youth or obesity i i just sit back and think they're not they're not involving the people themselves in the decision making yeah when the evaluation you know if you're um if you're designing a future that involves marginalized people and, and neglected groups then those people need to be involved in the design of the future we can't design things for them absolutely um, they've got to be involved in that design Yes. Yeah. So so let's let's talk briefly about this idea. There's an idea that comes up in chapter eight called uh, there's a heading, an educational imagination. Can you describe what you mean by the need to develop an educational imagination? This this term actually came from. um, uh, It's not John Stuart Mills, it's someone else like that name like that. uh, about the sociological imagination. And it was a paper I um, was given to read by um, a different Ian Cunningham, um, who's a tutor on the Ed D course at uh, UCL. And um, it was really saying that we don't always need more research about something. We just need to reflect and discern what we already know and use our imagination. So 
to, to think that things could be a different way. So in that chapter, um, I did what I love doing, which is to, to think about, describe a situation and just to imagine it being done differently. And in my usual way as an EP, rather than tell, tell people what to think, I ask them questions. So the question is, um, in the existing way, what learning is going on? What role did the teacher play in the learning? And um, how does the individual feel about themselves? I can't remember what the exact wording was. And, um, and I then ask the reader to imagine um, redesigning that experience or situation where decisions were made with the, the children or young people. And then ask themselves the same question, what learning went on, what was the role of the teacher, etc. Um, and I think sometimes it's just been given the space to reflect and share reflections and reflect on what you hear from other people that, that's important. And this is what my experience has been when I've run sessions in, in schools about this. It's not what I've said, it's the questions I've asked and the reflections they've shared and the imagination they've used in those sessions that has made the difference. So one question I may often start a session with, and if anyone wants to start a session with this, it's a free question. Um, have there ever been a time in your life where a decision was made for you that you felt you ought to have been involved in? Mm. And that sets a lot of emotions going, a lot of emotions. Things like people were on a holiday with some fellow students and the driver and the person sitting in the front decided they were going to go to a different place for lunch than what had been agreed. And how that anger with that decision kept going through the whole holiday and spoiled it for this person. Um, and someone said about the pieces that they were told to play, to learn when they were learning the piano as a child, suddenly became a big thing. I never had any say in what piece I was, I was told to learn when I was learning the piano. That's what one person said. But there were more things, and it was about their own work currently in school, where the emotions were the highest uh, about decisions being made what they say behind their backs that affected the way they taught or what they taught or who could use the hall or um, what the caretaker had decided with the head teacher that affected everybody's car parking or something. Um, and then I said, well, those were maybe things that, that happen occasionally. But for some children, um, their perception is this is just their life. Their life is being decided by everybody else. And they feel... They either kind of give in because they don't know any better or they feel all the time that they need to fight back and a sense of injustice and a sense that they're invisible, um, unimportant, powerless. And that has so many bad effects. So powerlessness is a basis of a lot of violence. It's the basis of people injecting people in nightclubs and spiking drinks. Um, it's that need for power go back to Glass's choice theory, if they haven't found responsible ways of meeting their need for power and self-worth, they will find irresponsible ways. So part of a school's job is to 
teach young people and help them to find responsible ways. That means ways that don't stop other people meeting their needs, that don't hurt other people or themselves, of, of meeting these needs for fun, freedom, power, self-worth, mm. freedom. Um, because if they don't find positive ways, the creative system will give them new ideas, like injecting people in natural nightclubs or grooming people, abusing people. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And and that you use the language of power quite a lot towards the end of the book. You're talking about this like as being a, a process of power sharing. And that's really what this is about, isn't it? But you were talking about power, how power isn't a zero sum game and that if like the, yeah. the, the it's not like the teacher has a has a certain like quota of power and if they give some to the pupils that the the, 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 the teacher is then less powerful. You're talking about how often the teachers who do this say that they feel more powerful because they are you know have using the power to to liberate um a sense of powerfulness in other people i suppose that that certainly seems to be true it seems that people who've never tried this worry the most about um the the loss of power and um that you're giving it away and the more people try it the more power they want to give away because it seems to me i've not not kind of written about this much but that it takes a lot of energy to make to retain power. If you're fearful of losing it, you actually have to invest energy in holding on to it and hanging on to it. Once you realize that sharing it has some good aspects and isn't going to you, know, you, you get rid of your fear of losing power, then you get, want to give more away because it leaves you freer and actually puts you more in control of your own life stopping trying to be in control of everybody else's yeah yeah absolutely and so i think that that would be a good note to 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 wrap this up on is that is that like i think that if people are listening to this and they think that they do want to start experimenting with these ideas that we can expect there to be resistance you you write in the book there's no doubt that cdm shakes things up you have to be ready to do things differently to rethink or even blur the roles of of uh, teacher and pupil um, a quote that comes from from Michael Fielding again, who's been quite towering. You, you, you acknowledge him. He was one of the first people that I came across. He was at Sussex before he went to UCL. Um, yes. he, he was there at the start of my master's back in 2008. And he's an incredible person. I really recommend for people to, to listen to his work, to, to, to engage with his work around uh, radical student voice. Uh, he's brilliant man um so yeah like this on this in this idea of like the problems that people are likely to encounter or resistance you know you, you talk about how teachers um are going to 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 have doubts teachers who negotiate how to make radical changes um they have to they have to relate in, in different ways to pupils and to their colleagues and there are pressures to conform to teacher norms, and this can create a tension in the minds of teachers and create doubts. And they just think, oh, this is just too much like hard work. Um, you know, like sometimes they'll get resistance from the children, first of all. Like the kids are not going to know how to handle this. You know, like sometimes <laughs> when you see when you see examples of, of research where they said, oh, we, we, we tried giving the children a choice, but they just made a bad choice. But it's not a choice that we would have made for them. So we're just going to take that take that power away from them again. And you're like, well, of, of course, they're not going to be able to like 
you know, they need to practice this stuff. They need to learn how to sit with the responsibility of, for example, being able to, you know, allocate another student to go on an errand, say, you know, they, they, they need to learn what that feels like and they need to grow into it and to learn how to use that uh, effectively and so on. Um, so they're, they're, you, we can expect there to be bumps in the road for sure. Um, and I, I really recommend for people who, who try this, I know I haven't plugged the Mighty Network for a while, but the Mighty Network is this lovely, very inclusive community, about 400 people in it now, parents and carers, young people, but also teachers, mainstream and alternative teachers who that this community sort of grown up alongside this this um podcast and it's a lovely sort of safe space in which people can share the the trials and tribulations of experimenting with these ideas and, and putting them into practice and, and i, I really just hope joined that... and i just joined yes and you just joined <laughs> one bigger um and so yeah so you end you ended that that chapter and really it's a nice way to end this book really in this podcast by saying that i hope that at the end of all of this you feel positive and confident that you can try CDM. It says, um, be prepared for some initial puzzlement from children and parents. Be patient. People's acceptance of and active participation, sorry, and active participation in collaboration may only really show itself, you know, a few weeks or months down the line. Keep going back to the pupils to talk things through. Don't feel you need to resort to old habits, even though others may counsel against further collaboration. Keep a CDM journal or even better, get the pupils to write it. Share your own joys and worries with one another. Otherwise, you are removing the collaborative nature of the enterprise. Um, so that seems to be a nice way to, to wrap this up for now. It does feel like we need to move towards a more collaborative era of schooling. Uh, the, the being done to model, you know, we've tried that for a good number of decades. And if you look at the news, <laughs> like it doesn't seem to be going so well. Like there are loads and loads of examples of how people are not developing into healthy, functioning adults who, you know, understand how to live and how to be in a world that's made of other people. And so maybe if we teach this stuff a little bit more explicitly in schools and learn how to operate in that social space in an effective way where we can share that power that you were just talking about it seems to me that we would have a very different world if we had that that kind of an education system oh i'm so glad you think that <laughs> no really really it's so 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 glad that that uh and maybe that the book has been a, a little grain of sand in that thinking as well absolutely yeah it's been great i've, re I've really enjoyed uh engaging with it and 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 thank you for for the, this this epic contribution really that I think that you've made to the field, um, and and as as again I really welcome the fact that although you you know you you worked as a teacher for two years you're not you're not looking at this through the eyes of a teacher particularly you're looking at this as somebody with years and years of of experience of working with young people, um, and just seeing that this is clearly the direction that we need to go in. Um, and it is a fringe concern, but things can change really quite quickly. You know, like, like ideas can spread throughout a population really quite quickly. And you don't need there to be that many people doing something. It's around sort of 20, 25 percent of the population. If we can get one in four teachers to start to start experimenting with these ideas and then we, the other people start to pay attention, then it sort of tips. It reaches a tipping point and it just becomes what everybody does now, you know. And yes. those changes do come along from time to time. And I think that this is a good candidate for a future such change. Let's tip in the direction of, of greater collaboration. See, see how that goes. 
Thank you. That's a lovely way of finishing. <laughs> yeah. Well. Okay. Well. Thank you very much. Do you have any final requests of, of any or anything that you'd like to ask of our listeners? Um. If anyone wants to even just have a chat to to put put some ideas through, um, if they're thinking of trying something, that uh, I'd be happy to um get an email from from people. Um. If you look at the back of the book, it's got my website, which is um pupilparticipation.co.uk with contact details my phone number and everything on that and um, I wouldn't mind if there was a rush if there's a dribble that's fine I've got one person to ring back today that's a start <laughs> absolutely the revolution starts here with the first it's step a, uh, the revolution starts here yeah. great alright thanks Geraldine thank you very much indeed a pleasure time is a measure of change Change. And if we don't try